Hello, my fellow Westorians. It's Nime time. Nime? I just said Nime. Nime is not a word, my friends. But it is. Nymeria time? <laughs> That's what daylight <laughs> savings time yeah, does to you. It throws exactly. you off. It makes you call it Nime instead of time. <laughs> Did you say Siberia? <laughs> This Friday, your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley! It's anger! Let me at him! Fear! Safety checklist is complete! Disgust! Ew! Ew! Sadness is in the house! Oh no! Hello! I'm Anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going! Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Nymeria. Nymeria. Okay. Well, yes, time is... Nymeria, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> We're off to a roaring start today. Hello and welcome to History of Westeros podcast. Yes, it's another episode of Valar Reredis for the World of Ice and Fire, where we take the topics presented in that grand tome and expand them into something a little more thorough, a little more detailed. We research, we pull things from the real world. And today... We have a guest introducing Jamie Redfern of the History of podcast series. I was introduced to you through Hannibal and the Punic Wars, your series on that. I was a listener. I listened to that whole thing. It was really fun. And so I thought of you for this. But you've got a lot of other shows. So please tell us about all your great shows and say hello to History of Westeros listeners. Hello, History of Westeros listeners. I'm Jamie. I've been in the history podcasting game for about 10 years or so. So I've done a, a variety of shows on the Punic Wars, being a firm favorite. I've also done a biography of Alexander the Great, a series on modern Middle Eastern history called Arab Springer History. And I'm currently on how long, like six years, seven years into a, a history of the United States, which is plodding along at an incredibly slow pace. <laughs> really enjoying finding lots of uh, digressions to go into along the way. So I'm curious, just just a random question related to your American podcast. Do you know, do you have like demographics on your, like what, what countries listen? Is it, is it a lot of American listeners listening to your American history podcast? Or? Mostly Americans. Yeah, okay. yeah. Right on. I mean, I think they just like the accent. That's all it is. <laughs> well, we love the um, English accent. That's just a thing. Americans have like a reverse stereotype. It's all oh, British people. They just sound so smart. <laughs> I'm just making stuff up as I go along. But they're like, oh, he must be like a professor or something. <laughs> Sounds like he knows what he's talking about. Exactly. <laughs> and yeah, stages on that for the last 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> well, we had a little bit of foray into American history here on the show when we talked about folklore and how folklore worked in Westeros and how we used American folklore as an example. Do you cover any American folklore on that show? I'm not into it properly. I'm still like just getting out of the um, like into the early actual American history. I think I've oh, literally okay. just covered the revolution. Oh, okay, so yeah, so, it's not really that period yet. Okay, good. Yeah, I'm still in the like dissecting mythology phase. Right on. Which I suppose is also plenty of in in Westeros. Yeah, definitely, definitely. A lot of lot of crossover. George likes to use a lot of real world influence. The one of the things we're going to talk about today, of course, is comparisons with Rome and Carthage and Valyria 
and Giscari and a few other real world comparisons. Also, we're going to talk about war elephants as a big fun topic for Hannibal and the Punic Wars. And we're looking forward to elephants playing a role in the Winds of Winter and beyond because we know they're part of the Golden Company and we may see them elsewhere. And there's also mammoths, which I suppose that's, there's no real world comparison for that, but it's probably similar to war elephants. So, hey, fun stuff, lots of connections. And I've got a, a fun little anecdote. Every time Jamie and I talk, and usually it's on Twitter or email or something, I just can't help but type Jamie, the, the Jamie Lannister spelling, <laughs> you know, every well, single time. Me. And I tell him every single time. I'm like, I did it again. I typed your name, Jamie, and then delete, 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 M-I-E. I'm not confident I've ever spelled Jamie correctly. And when I was making this episode... How did I write it in the description? You did it too, huh? Yeah, I did it too. <laughs> we are, <laughs> we are like very indoctrinated. <laughs> <laughs> We've got some great stuff today. We've got some fun stuff today. And I'll give some shout outs here. Thanks to our patrons for keeping the lights on and supporting us for creating additional content. Also give a shout out to Nina for her invaluable assistance with notes and other additional research. She's got a her blog, Good Queen Alley. That's Good Queen Alley with one L. Tumblr.com. Recent post on there is about ritualism and old gods worship, talking about how some oddities of the way the old gods are worshipped in comparisons to other religions. Good topic. Check that out. As we've been doing recently, we start each episode with a trivia question. So let's do that before we kick off our first discussion. After taking Marine. Daenerys sends envoys out to several places in the region, seeking allies and trading partners. Which former Valyrian city sends her a cedar chest containing her envoys' heads by way of answer? Of course, that answer being no. I don't suppose you cut off heads to say yes, but your <laughs> mileage may vary. <laughs> Play on opposite day. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, she cut, they cut our, cut our heads off. Yay, they accepted. <laughs> Never sent an envoy on opposite day. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. No, they didn't know it was opposite day in that city that, whose name I will reveal at the end of the episode. So this time we're going to talk about expansion. The title, as the title implies, oh, well, it doesn't imply, it says straightforwardly, <laughs> wars with old gifts, founded cities, slavery, and the comparisons that we talked about, the war elephants, and then government and culture. There'll be some more of that. We talked a lot about that last time, but of course it bleeds into multiple eras. We'll save things like the Free Cities, the Doom, and the Century of Blood for another time. Those are pretty huge topics, and we, we can't cover it all in one day. And it looks like we've got a super chat from TKOK Podcast Network. says, watching while I try and crush corporate greed and embracing the magic of the mountain in Park City, Utah. Hashtag Babe Manor. You're in Park City, Utah. All right, Tommy, that's cool. Appreciate you checking in with us while you're out there. And definitely good luck on crushing that corporate greed. We, uh, the world needs more of that. The crushing, not the corporate greed. <laughs> we'll see. We're going to get into some ancient versions of corporate, maybe greed. Corporate's not the right word, but it's definitely greed. Let's start with a quote by the man himself, George R.R. R. Martin. First, we'll have the question, and then uh, Shea will read George's answer. Sean's going to read the question. Valeria is a place that we never actually see in the books, but its presence is felt throughout. I've always associated it with the Roman Empire, but when you describe the doom of Valeria with the boiling seas and giant tsunamis, it also calls to mind our own legends of Atlantis. Am I on the right track with these comparisons? Yes, and once again, I've mixed and matched. There are elements of Valeria that are similar to Rome. It was the dominant world power for hundreds of years. Unlike Rome, the dominance was partially based on magic and on dragons, as well as on the strength of their legions. But there is certainly an element to that. 
Of course, the fall of the Roman Empire was a slow process that took centuries, while Valyria fell overnight. So in that sense, it is more like the Atlantis legends. And then another time, he gave a somewhat similar but a notably different answer on a similar, from a similar question. Valeria, at the zenith of its power, was neither a kingdom nor an empire, or at least it had neither a king nor an emperor. It was more akin to the old Roman Republic. I suppose, in theory, the franchise included all freeholders, that is, freeborn landowners. Of course, in practice, wealthy, highborn, and sorcerously powerful families came to dominate. What a term, sorcerously powerful. That's <laughs> George for you. <laughs> so, Jamie, what's your first reaction? Do you think the Rome-Valeria comparison is pretty strong, or is it just something that works on, on a surface level, or what's your general reaction to it? I think it's very strong, and it works in quite a lot of different ways. I think when everything in the... Uh, Game of Thrones world is all like it works in lots of different levels. So there are lots of things you can find comparisons to. But the way that I suppose you think like the his like the present day, we're all affected by like the ghosts of the past. Mm. Like it affects everything, every bit of the consciousness. And when you deal with what I've like modern day Westeros or Essos, you can feel Valeria in every little bit of it hiding there in the background. And that's what I feel we have today with the Roman Empire, that it's always there in the background. In the Middle Ages, which I suppose is what a lot of it is based off, you find the odd little traces of Rome hidden away in there and things that have nothing to do with it. There's a, a history of the Dukes of Normandy that was written in the 11th century. That If you read it on the face of it, it looks just like a history of the Dukes of Normandy. Mm -hmm. But it's actually a big play on uh, the Aeneid and Virgil. And <laughs> it's all that that culture is just embedded so in there and everyone knows what it is, even if they don't quite understand it. So it's, oh, this story is familiar, but no one knows why. And it's because of these like cultural traditions. And I think there's, there's so much of that in there. So while you can compare Valyria to a lot of different things, Rome or more generally like the Greco-Roman world, I think that works is probably a very strong analogy. Right on. It strikes me interestingly, because that is what you say is very true. And it's true here in America too. We don't have Roman buildings here, but they're all over Europe. You have them in England, but we still have that influence here. So it must be even stronger there where you like literally still have structures built by the Romans that are still there, <laughs> still standing, and, and they're just constant reminders. Where I live um, in Manchester, there is the ruins of a Roman fort, no joke, about 200 meters that way. Oh, wow, that's so cool. <laughs> that's really yeah. cool. Yeah, when, when I went to Europe, we were just like, I was just stunned because there's just there's nothing in America that's... You have to go to find Me uh, Spanish buildings to find anything that's older than 300 years. And so you just like go in England or in Ireland, we're just like blown away. But like, that's a thousand years old. Like, I've never seen anything, a, a building a thousand years old. There's just... <laughs> everything's so much older here. It's so cool. So that really does give an impact. And, and like you're saying, yeah, there's, there's echoes of Valyria everywhere, whether it's the cities that they founded that are still around, whether they're bloodlines, their look, like you still have that going, or the roads. There's so many, yeah. So... I mean, the language, like High Valyrian. Yeah. Heck yeah, you're right. They, people still speak yeah. that. The, the references to their equivalent of pop culture, you know, their myth mythological characters. Yeah. Just like we referenced, I talked about this before, we might reference King Arthur or Noah, even though they're far away or in time and location, but they're still pervasive throughout our culture. Same thing in Westeros. Saw the, the heroes in a culture of Valyria. Saw a joke today mm -hmm. about Italy deciding to reclaim its ancient borders. <laughs> It was just a map of the Roman Empire. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if you can pull that off, Italy. 
So there's a couple other things that I would point out that are that have some similarity beyond just culture and influence. For example, if you take Slaver's Bay and compare it to the Mediterranean, you've got there's a little bit of similarities there. It's, there's obviously some substantial differences too, but you've got a lot of the same powerful nations set up. Like in the Mediterranean, one of the big features, of course, is Egypt and the Nile is a gigantic river and you have the Rhine, which is to the west of Valyria instead of across the, the water there. But it's a similar sort of situation. And we, when we talked about the Rhoynar in our episodes on Nymeria, we went pretty deep with comparisons to Egypt at the time and other nations, uh, but not Rome because they weren't similar to Rome. <laughs> but you also have like Valyrian Peninsula, and shattered as it is, it's just a little bit like Italy projecting out into the center there. It gives them a little more, I don't know, geographical prominence maybe. And they're certainly in the center. And as we talked about last time, there's a lot of centrism there too. Do you think that's a pretty big deal for, for Rome's dominance, the fact that they were positioned in the middle of the Mediterranean? Do you think that was pretty relevant, or is that mostly just other factors that mattered more than that? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Like it's, uh, there's a lot of different influences that they're getting, so um, they're able to develop their military traditions by being um, that close to Greece, Nepros, and then the like, Phoenician settlement, while being like far enough away that they're not overwhelmed by it. Everything's quite close. It's really good for trade. Mm. It's like a perfect situation. I really like Valeria as an Italy comparison. As you can take it like another step if you change time zones, not time zones, eras. <laughs> that, um, like when you think like after the fall, when you've got all the Italian city states popping up and the constant fighting between them is basically the three cities after, after the doom. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, especially some, and some of them, George took that influence very directly. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Valeria is Greco-Roman versus Gis is Phoenician. And that's cool. Yeah, Phoenician, uh, the Phoenician culture, for those who don't know out there, were the precursors of the Carthaginian civilization. Is that the right way to put it? Yeah, Carthage is just a Phoenician colony. So the old sissies of um, like Tyre, um, Sidon that are in um, modern day Lebanon. That you think of those as so ancient and the way that uh, like Gis is described as being older than Valeria. Valeria is like the up and coming challenger to Gis. And that reminds me a lot of the how the Greek city-states, as they start to develop trading networks, they start to move into Western, the Western Mediterranean, into the Black Sea, and there's that competition yeah. between the Phoenician merchants. And then eventually that takes on a military sphere when you've got the campaigns of Alexander going in, fighting against all these cities, this older civilization, and then just smashing it over. And then the Punic Wars, obviously, with the battles between Rome and Carthage, neither of which are the origins of their civilizations, but they take it to the military extreme. And then you've got this titanic battle. I think, yeah, it works really well. Right on. I got to say, I, I appreciate that's humorous the way you said Alexander went to war with all these cities. Yeah, yeah just everyone. <laughs> he's like, yeah, uh, pretty much uh, everyone. All of them, yeah. <laughs> Everybody. Yeah, he's like, I want all of you, yeah. I don't have small ambitions. <laughs> yeah, and the roads are another one that really remind me of that. There's that old saying, all roads lead to Rome. Good example of a cultural like touchstone phrase or something, whatever the right word is, that we still hear today, even though it doesn't really have a meaning. We don't use it for anything that I can think of that's 
relevant. It's just a phrase that survived. I, I can't think of a, a, like a useful context to say that other than as historical. But with the Valyrian dragon roads were a similar thing. And, and uh, Jamie, you write here that the royal roads of Persia were somewhat similar. So that's, that's a curiosity. I, I'm not familiar with the royal roads of Persia. So it was probably like the first big road system in the world. Oh, okay. um, where it's going along connecting the different bits of uh, Persian Empire. So you've got them going from Egypt and modern-day Turkey all the way through Mesopotamia into Iran and using that as a the basis of, of dominance, really, that you're able to quickly move the key elements and the messaging around the empire and use that to dominate. And I, that's one of the things I love about George's writing is like those real-world bits that get in there. Mm. And it... Yeah, that is exactly how you dominate an area. You won't be able to dominate it if you can't traverse it quickly. You can't communicate quickly. So the focus on the roads, I think, is a really nice touch. That all the the big empires in world history are all based around the like the road systems or the communication systems. So it's really nice getting that in there. Yeah, like things that would Which make is, sense. Like you, yeah, yeah. just a, a lot logistical things. Sean, that's the kind of thing you appreciate yeah. a lot too, huh? Yeah, for sure. I was also going to point out that same idea of the roads importance is also why being on a central coastal piece of land is important. When you're able to get your ships in and out more quickly and readily to more different population centers and such, port in Italy is, ports in general are, are going to be more valuable because you can get more quickly information and goods. But even a port in somewhere like Italy, which is surrounded by other ports, right, mm-hmm. is more valuable than a port in, I don't know, Scandinavia or whatever. And here's where we have the double whammy from Valyria because yes, they had the roads, they had the access, the quickness, they could get from place to place with an army pretty quickly. But then they have the additional ability to get there really fast with a dragon or two or six or however many. (laughs) It always helps. Yeah, like just this whole nother level of, of operation of we can get there quickly. That's the thing, ancient world thing. Like sometimes the consideration is how could they ever bring their army here in time for us before we can do this or that or the other, whatever planning or plotting they have. By the time they get here, we'll have the city under control, etc. That's just not going to be the case with Valyria. Not only the dragons, but things like the glass candles that give them uh, somewhat modern communication ability, uh, a microcosm of that. Even outside of ancient times, when the American colonies declare war, England's like, you just wait till three months from now (laughs) when our boats get over there. (laughs) What's that? Since you, Sean, you wanted to talk about Sparta at some point in this episode, that reminds me of, well, who was it? Was it was it Alexander that threatened Sparta? Said, we'll bring our armies over and if if we come there, you'll do this. And they just, Sparta responds, if... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> was that Alexander? Who who thre- who was that response to? Who was that? I can't. I remember. don't think it was Alexander. Yeah. It was um, his father, Philip. Oh, it was Philip. Yeah. Okay, yeah, so Philip, close, yeah. but not quite. That's cool. All right, on. Yeah, Philip. Another quite a piece of work that guy was. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of powerful families, we laugh. We left off last time talking about the forty families. Let's pick that back up. It wasn't a complete discussion, and it's super relevant here because. As we all well know, the world is mostly ruled by wealthy people. That was even more true in the ancient world because here they there's like a, a veneer of, we say everyone's tr- supposed to be treated the same. It doesn't work out that way, but at least there's like this veneer of everyone's supposed to be equal before the law. But in a lot of ancient societies, no, wealth, nobility, certain things like this, just you actually were above the law in a lot of cases, or you have power that makes it even more blatant that you could get away with just about anything. So this is a really interesting topic to me because it 
determines how governments are run and it determines things like who you conquer and and all these things that we still talk about with Rome. A lot of these things are the seeds of these were planted, if not the large activities by these very small groups of very powerful people. It wasn't necessarily their intent to have the fallout of history that it's had, but it certainly worked out that way. They just wanted to be powerful and wealthy. And let's have this quote. At its apex, Valyria was the greatest city in the known world, the center of civilization. Within its shining walls, two score rival houses vied for power and glory in court and council, rising and falling in an endless, subtle, oft savage struggle for dominance. So it's not entirely clear when this came about. It certainly came around after the dragon lord stuff started with Valyria. So because the 40 families were all dragon rider families. So clearly it had to have come after they tamed dragons. Unless some proto version of it existed before. You never know, I suppose. But we wonder whether they originated from certain class, whether it's like a similarity to say the Roman patrician system where it was just that these top families had dibs on the dragons or something along those lines. It's, it's, it's harder to say because blood matters more in, in, these pla- in, these, in this world with literal dragon connections and all that. So what do you think about, Jamie, what do you think about this family system concept and how does this compare to say the Roman consular system or other ancient world systems where the powerful families are basically in charge and the the leaders are chosen from these powerful families. It's a pretty broad topic. So when you look at, I suppose, like city-state oligarchies and how they generally tend to emerge, they start off from a relatively small community and you look to who can protect that community. It'll be the stronger warriors who can protect them and the people who can afford to do that. So you've got the people who can afford to have weapons, the people who can afford horses, who can afford chariots. And then by virtue of protecting, they entrench the power. And then eventually that becomes an aristocracy over the course of about three or four years. So I think it makes sense to play that out in Valeria with who can do the protecting, who can look after the people. It's the people who can handle dragons, Mm. who can protect them with that. And so that naturally leads to a, if you play that out over a few centuries, a group of people who would have that close relationship who naturally end up as a a leadership group with all the power and all the money. Mm. Then by that point, it's almost unquestioned. You can't get out of it. You're in a classical Athens or something where you've got a lot of powerful families controlling things, or you've got the same situation in Rome where it's the people who are the elites who can afford to go campaigning Every season, they're not. They don't need to think. Oh, I need to get back to the farm to go look after my cabbages or something like that. Yeah, so you wild. can go out. Yeah, you can do the campaigning. You can become a general. You can go take wealth from other people, and it just naturally builds over time until you get ultra powerful families who can dominate the course of empires, like the the Julii family, where you've got like Marius, uh, who's elected consul six times. You've got Julius Caesar. You've got um, Augustus, all coming from the same family group. That really feels familiar to a situation like Westeros or Essos, where you have these families ruling for hundreds, if not thousands of years, and they're just like, yep, the Starks of 2,000 years ago did this. Yeah, you've got, I mean, maybe the time scale's larger in, in this Westeros situation, but it's pretty darn big for, for these families. So some of these families probably trace their descent to pre-Roman times too, I would imagine as well, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like some of them tracing themselves to like gods and other things like that as well. Oh, yeah. You trace it back as far as you can get. I mean, the the Julii claimed that they were 
descendants of Aeneas, mm-hmm. who came from Troy, who was the son of is it Venus. So yeah, connected to the gods through that way. <laughs> As you and do. then you try and trace your history back into the mythology and all of that. Which when you get phrases like 40 family, so, like, it seems so familiar, but it's like almost imaginary. Like you can do a lot of constructing and inventing family trees to put yourself into certain families if you want to be. Yeah, it's not like a lot of people can <laughs> So you do wonder like how much of this is actually 40 families? How much of it is just, oh, whoever happens to be rich, yeah, they can be part of our family. We want to, we want to slice that pie. Oh, that's a good point because right, Romans, they did they did a lot. There was a lot of adopting in ancient Rome. Like yeah. just adults adopting adults. You, you, you could even have a, younger people adopting older people. Couldn't you have that? Yeah. Yeah, adoption yeah, is very different <laughs> than the way we perceive yeah. it now. <laughs> That's really interesting. I wonder, yeah, I wonder if Valeria did some of that. I mean, I mean, it's, it's, it makes sense like in, uh, marriage connections are often about adding, you know, share, combining wealth, combining power to create even more power. But hmm. It makes a lot of sense too, just when you think about the nature of marriages and families and, I don't know, traditions, both historically and within this Martin's world, that there's a lot of crossover. Families marry across each other and it and people die, lines end, someone doesn't have a son, etc. So you can imagine those 40 families probably swayed. There were probably like a pool of families vying to get into the 40. And among them, they had different levels of claim, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and within the 40, there are probably some who are on the outs. For, you know, if, if they don't have a son right now, or if they if they betray the one of the top five houses one more time, they're not going to get a marriage betrothal. This other family is. And it's probably a, a flux of who exactly was included in the 40 over time. I would agree with that. And I thought I want to ask a question I want to ask you, Jamie. What sort of like a general idea of the process for falling in or out of that top group? If you're in it and you fall out of it, I imagine it's it's a really hard group to get into in the first place. But I know, for example, one of the reasons Sean wanted to bring up Sparta is the shrinking upper class. And then it just, mm. it just imploded on itself because it got so small. Because it, the, the barriers to get in were just were increasingly difficult and new families weren't being created. How does that maybe play out here as a, as a comparison? Yeah, I think it, it tends to play out depending on like how closed off the society, mm. the society is. That when you do get very close societies like Sparta, you just end up with a mess. You can trace Sparta's history very neatly as like they're prominent against the size of the population. I think there's a constitutional reform in about the 650s BC when all these rules around who can be a Spartan and who isn't, and like the rules of inheritance all get established. And then there's about 100, 150 years where the population's somewhat stable. So that's when you've got like the wars against Persia and you've got the Peloponnesian Wars against Athens, where Sparta's doing okay, but losing a lot of people through war. People are dying. There aren't that many Spartans anyway. And then it just hits, like goes off a cliff. The population plummets mm. in the 300s. True. And then within about 100 years, you've gone from a population of a couple thousand, which for ancient Greek is quite it's reasonable. But when you're down to having like hundreds of potential fighting men, you're not going to be able to rule an empire. Yeah, no one's afraid of you anymore. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I seem to remember, I, I'm, I'm sure I've got numbers wrong and it's going to change over time. But I think at one point, Sparta was like 10th the population of Athens, Oof. but was still on par with them militarily. And I, and I think at that time, Sparta... See, the thing is, I don't know if this counts the, the entire population and all the, the, the Hellenites. The, the Hellots, yeah. The, 
Helots, yeah, sorry. But I think there were like something like 40,000 and Athens was like 400,000. But then it got to the point where there were only like 700 Spartans, like <laughs> not counting their slave population. Yeah. But yeah, there was only hundreds of them. They just didn't have enough people to maintain the society they had been trying to. Yeah, 100%. Like when you've got Athens has a slightly more tolerant version on adding people into it, society on bringing people in. It's still fairly strict, so it, it manages a bit longer, but it does eventually fall away. But then you get somewhere like Rome, where it's pretty much anybody can be a Roman if you, if you want to be. So they're willing to bring in everybody. So eventually, like, it starts off with people who were just born in Rome. But eventually, if you're talented and if you're rich, then you can come in, you can join in, you can get citizenship and bring your way in. So people start becoming or getting involved in the aristocracy from slightly further out. You get people from around Italy who are brought in. And then over time, it comes like over the whole empire, like the, the best emperors come from Spain, they come from the Dalmatian coast. So by having like that very, or being by very good at bringing people into a flagging system, it can survive a lot longer. Like in the ancient world, you get those, I guess, different degrees, like Sparta's at one end of a very closed system that falls away quite sharply, Athens in the middle, and then Rome at the at the other end, you get a, a long-standing empire. Very interesting. Along this line that we're talking, a slavery is a is a almost every part of every history. Slavery is a big factor, and it's it was part of Valeria to have slavery, and in different ways, Rome and, and Athens or, or uh, Sparta, same thing. And it's there's no real easy or simple discussion about slavery. It's a tough, diverse topic integrated in almost every culture of all history. But part of the point I want to make is we have this certain, I, I say we probably like Americans have this certain vision of what slavery is, but at different times, at different places, it was defined in different ways, there's different types or levels of slavery. And that was something that Rome and Sparta, a lot of these older countries had much more defined sort of caste systems. It wasn't just like white people have black slaves. It wasn't as simple as that. It was uh, much more economic, right? Like it had much more to do with with money, I thought. My understanding, right? If you're, yeah. if you're broke, like, well, I mean, it had a lot slavery. to do with money in the Americas. Oh, yeah, you know, absolutely. But, yeah. You're right, yeah. But it, it, for example, it had a lot, to do, a lot of times when you would conquer someone in a battle, you would take those people's slaves. Yeah, I just mean, but I'm then, disagreeing with you about the racial element. It was a lot less, it wasn't as important. Oh, well, yes, yes, yes. There was certainly a sort of exclusivity of your race or whatever, but it's, it, the point is that there was a more defined sort of system for progressing through levels of slavery and earning citizenship and such. I think that Rome was a little bit more set up for people to move into citizenship than, well, Rome, Athens, other city-states, than Sparta, who was like, no, you guys are slaves forever, and we're <laughs> Spartans forever, and they were trying to maintain that. So, Jamie, as far as this would be something that I would say is a difference then between Rome and Valeria, is Rome had this very open, like you said, Spanish emperors, Arab emperors, just all over. It wasn't, they didn't have big issues with race in terms of who was in charge, that, which is why I brought up the money and power thing. Mm -hmm. That seems to be more what mattered. And like, it's a merit system, I suppose you could say, their version of merit. Now, how does that, that's very different, I would suppose, from Valeria, which was very like big on racial purity for not just race reasons, because there's the magic aspect to this, but because we hear that incest wasn't super common among the non-Dragon Rider families. That was really just about that. So one question I wanted to ask is how much did incest play out in some of these ancient high-born families? I know it wasn't a big deal. As for my understanding is it wasn't a thing, as much of a thing in Rome, but it was, say, Ptolemy's Egypt. It was, there was plenty of it. So I know there's, there's some of it. So what are maybe some other examples or just that, that general topic I'm curious about? Because that's obviously a connection to Valeria as well. <laughs> 
yeah, in Rome, there's a there's a very different like understanding of incest compared to the modern day. I think it was strictly along the paternal line was considered incest, oh. and it was like so either I think your parents, your children, your like uncles and aunts on the father's side, and cousins on the father's side. But the mother's wasn't. Really? So you get a very so sometimes some things that we'd consider incest, they wouldn't. But when there were things that they would consider incest, then that really crossed the line. Um so it's the, pretty serious, huh? Yeah, the Emperor Claudius marrying his aunt's Agrippina because that was on the father's side. So that drew heavy criticism oh. from where they were basically shunned, aside from the fact that they were like emperor and empress, so they couldn't, but it was considered quite scandalous at the time. But anything else in Roman terms isn't much of a big deal. And then in Egypt, I mean, yeah, there's a long tradition of like uh, brothers marrying sisters. Oh, that goes pre that goes pre Macedonian influence. They yes. they picked that up from the Egyptians. Yeah. Okay, I got that in reverse. I see. Okay, yeah. and it goes um, like all the way through society. Egypt's great for social history because there's a lot of documentation written in I think Greek and Coptic. So you learn a lot about Alexandria in the around the from like BC to AD. And you can chart families because they do these censuses every 10 years. And so you can see, oh, this is their family, and these are their children, and here are the children slightly older. And they were the next one, here are the children all married to each other. And it's oh, just gosh. what happens. <laughs> It's, oh, you'll see there'll be like six children. And then at the next one, oh, they're all paired off and married to each other. But it, it just happens. Wow. That is a way of securing like the family possessions so that you don't want to let any of it get outside or keep skills within the family. It sounds like, I think some people yeah. have the impression that George R. R. Martin exaggerated this aspect of, <laughs> it's like, mm, well, the dragon part is fantastical, but there's a lot of incest in there's the ancient world. Incest, yeah. <laughs> The taboos have changed over time. I mean, but it's not because the taboos did exist in some places. It's it's strange how I guess they just took hold in some places and others. And I guess do do we do you know where some of these taboos originate from? Isn't it just regular just noticing the the, the genetic the problems that come from it, like the straight up physiology, or is it does it there other ancient world knowledge that plays out in this? Pretty much. There's very it's rare that incest is widespread. You occasionally get it in ruling families to mainly for aspects of like where they're descended from the gods. Um, But you sometimes get aspects of that and you don't want to bring non-gods into it. It's very similar Um, to the Dragon Rider stuff, except it's not as straightforward, not as provable. (laughs) It's the same like basic idea of whatever gives me power, I'm not going to share it. I'm descended from a god, I've got a dragon. You're not, you can't have power because you don't have a dragon. You're not descended from a god. There's another factor that's maybe more simple than you realize. It's much about just abusive relationships. It takes a while. And especially when you go farther back in history, when there was, you know, less conscious of a society, when, when people were more divided into tribes or whatever, there wasn't histories and stuff. It's really hard to understand or detect generational changes in genetics over time, right? That's, it's hard. It takes a long time to observe that people die before it comes to fruition stuff, but it's not hard to observe father having sex with his own daughter is messed up. Does that make sense? Like like pretty much every culture in any time with no knowledge genetics is still going to recognize that's messed up. An older brother and his sister, that's messed up, right? It's, it's usually the incest that we're worried about is a really it's abusive situations. 
right? Mm-hmm. It's and Craster. So it's not right. Like a good, good example. Oh yeah, that's like a very extreme. How do they yeah. break out of that? But, like they're they're raised to believe this is how it is. This is how it always is. This is how it's always going to be. Like they yeah. don't even necessarily conceive of another lifestyle that could exist until they're a young adult or even later in some cases. So like cousins or or maybe some distant someone who's your relative, a cousin or even an uncle or an aunt or something, but someone that isn't like doesn't have authority over you. Having a relationship with them isn't necessarily abusive, right? Someone who's your cousin, but they're in another town. You don't meet them until you're 20 and you fall in love. You don't even know if they're cousins or... You see what I'm saying? Like you can see how you can have relationships that aren't necessarily wrong or bad or abusive, even if they're within a family. Mm -hmm. And we have come to learn that can cause trouble after generations. But anyone can see an older brother taking advantage of his younger sister. No, you're not allowed to do that. And communities and societies are going to try to stop that from happening, whether or not they know or understand anything about the genetic mutations that can occur. Mm-hmm. Well said. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about, uh, let's move on a little bit here. Let's talk about how the infighting, a little bit of how infighting goes with these situations. With these oligarchies, there's a, a lot of internal competition. And I suppose Jorah Mormont said it well when he said, it's the, the high lords playing their game of thrones. The common people just want to be left alone. In some ways, when the high lords just go at it, it does work that the people are left alone. It just depends on how hard they're going at it. If they're bringing, raising armies and going at it, that's terrible for the, the lowborn. But if they're just like assassinating each other, eh, it's not such a big deal to, to other people. It doesn't have this huge spillover factor necessarily. It can because it can result in the change of leadership and that can have all sorts of uh, downstream effects. So that's something I want to talk about as, as well. How much do these ancient world oligarchies stop each other from gaining power In other words, they don't want one family to become so powerful that they become effectively a king or actually a king in some cases, or they they get powerful enough to declare themselves emperor. How does that generally play out like on a day-to-day, week-to-week, small scale? They team up on each, like one of them, a bunch of them will gang up on the powerful one or something like that. Like, how does it usually go? So there's a a phase of Greek history called like, I guess the origins of the, the tyrants and the tyrannicides which is where you get over all of Greece and like the Greek world, all these oligarchies that eventually one family or one individual tries to think, right, okay, I want to take more power here. And how they always do it is by appealing to the masses. Like they say, right, the rest of these oligarchs, they're all taking advantage of you. I won't let them do that. <laughs> We've seen that before. Yes, that's for sure. <laughs> At least not for a while. That, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Boy, that one. Some things never change, right? <laughs> so, yeah, you get these the tyrannies where they start popping up. And a lot of the times, these are quite popular. So sometimes they'll enact like law codes that can be uh, like curbs and the abuses. And then what will usually happen is the first ruler is quite popular and then they die and it's what happens next. Oh, my son, he will take control. And the son is a spoiled brat. Who, <laughs> he didn't live uh, to any of that stuff, yeah. <laughs> yeah, who is a tyrant. And um, <laughs> then all the aristocracy thinks, right, okay, we can't do this anymore. Let's just get rid of them. So you have the tyrannicides who are like the assassins of the tyrant. And so it goes around in circles of this. Like we'll have one family will break away. They'll dominate for a generation. And then it falls over in the second generation. Everyone, well, they get killed. The oligarchy comes back. And then, I don't know, maybe 30, 40 years later, the cycle repeats itself. Wow. So you go through these periods of dominance 
But an oligarchy is generally bad at looking after itself. It, it will always do something that destabilizes the oligarchy, either through putting one person in control or where the whole thing falls down and it becomes a democracy or something like that. Mm. Is this number 40 is something George probably made up or do we have, is there other numbers that kind of get thrown around in the ancient world? Greek history in particular is full of like numbers where they like mm. to give numbers to every group of thing. I think there's, uh, I think literally the 30 tyrants. The 30 tyrants, yeah, a, that one just popped in my head too. Yeah, 30 tyrants. Mm. Yeah, then, then there are the... Um, any group of government always gets a number. There's the the 100, the 600, the 3,000. They okay, all yeah. all the assemblies, however many people are in them, they become that's the number. Mm. And then they're always referred to as the number. So that's quite common. So it gets locked in for a little while, but it's not it's not a literal yeah. number usually, right? Like you said. Yeah, it's yeah, it, it varies over time. So it's will be like yeah, 300, but there may not necessarily be 300 people in it. Mm. It'll it'll change. So as far as wars, you mentioned we one of the most famous examples that I know of is, I almost said Craster again, I meant to say Crassus, <laughs> but he, who you used, you made an example of these families can just raise their own army and go out and do conquering. That's just something they can do. They can choose to do that. And there's sometimes there's laws that say they can't do it, like Julius Caesar's wars of aggression in Gaul were technically illegal, right? It didn't stop him, but mm-hmm. that's what we're told. Let's talk about that interplay a little bit from how it may have played out in Valyria. Like if a Valyrian conqueror wants to go out and attack a a city and take it over, we know that happened a lot of times. We know that a lot of their conquests worked like that. It wasn't some nation or like the whole nation didn't organize to do this. It was just a powerful group of Valyrians that says, hey, let's go conquer a city, establish ourselves there and we'll end up paying taxes back to the freehold. But that and that's how it would go. Is that a thing that existed in the ancient world too? Just powerful groups will come out and do that? The main reason you'd want conquest is because it elevates your own status within your city, within your state. So it's just how you go about it. Mm. And then that varies from place to place. I live Athens in the, the Peloponnesian War. One of my all-time favorite people from history, Alcibiades. Oh, yeah, I love that guy. Um, <laughs> he's, he's quite a character. <laughs> um, and he basically comes up with this harebrained scheme to go invade Sicily. He's like, you know what? It would be great if I was like the, the master of Sicily. I know what I'll do. I'll give a damn good speech in the assembly. And I'll convince everybody else that what we really need to do is invade Sicily. This is, by the way, folks, this is while they're already at war with Sparta. This isn't just a peacetime. They're already at war with Sparta, who's right there. And Sicily is pretty far from Athens. (laughs) And they've been at war with Sparta like 15 years. Like, no, let's take all our our armies and let's go invade Sicily. Um, And funnily enough, it doesn't work out. Um, (laughs) Yeah, that kind of thing that you're able to just convince everyone that what you really need to do is be put in charge of an army and you can go do it. In Rome, where you'll build your political career off military victories, so you'll find ways to get involved in conflict. So you are governor in or in Rome for a year as a consul, and then you go off to be a governor in one of the provinces for a year as a proconsul. So one of the really plum gigs is to go to somewhere near an enemy and you can try and provoke a war. So that's exactly what Caesar does. Oh. He is elected as consul the next year. He's made a governor in the south of France and he's able to provoke a war with some tribe and uses that as an excuse to conquer the whole thing. Pompey does the same thing. He's able to get a, a gig as the 
proconsul in Asia, and he uses that to conquer the whole of the East. Ooh. Crassus does it where he's like, oh, I'm going to be the proconsul of Syria, and then I'll find a way to start a war with Parthia. And then he, he goes off and go dies in the and, desert. And inspires Viserys getting gold poured on his head. Good job, Crassus. Yes. You, you, you directly influenced the Game of Thrones. <laughs> I'm glad in modern times you've gotten past this idea of provoking war. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good thing we got rid of that, yeah. So did this change in the imperial era for Rome? Was it different, the starting wars? Was it like more locked down? Was the, was the emperor more in control of the armies? Yeah, so what happens is during the Roman civil wars, Augustus realizes that, hey, maybe it's a bad idea to have lots of people controlling massive armies because they... <laughs> It's just generally really? a bad idea. What an idea. So a good idea <laughs> would be if I owned all the armies because then no one could challenge me. <laughs> so he undergoes, like, I mean, first of all, he has to kill Mark Antony. So he does a good job at that. Then uh, when Mark Antony's dead, he's got most of the legions. He implements a series of reforms. And like how the Roman Empire is birthed is basically through a complicated series of governorships mm. that are personally attached to him. So every region in the empire that happens to have a legion i'm the governor of so nobody else will have control of those legions nobody else can start a war and then that eventually becomes all tied together in a little package that they call like the augustus that that all gets attached to that title and then you pass that on to your successor um, and then one of his many names, Imperator, will eventually become emperor over time. And then that's how we get hmm. the notion of the empire. Hmm. So like, yeah, the idea that you don't let anyone else do that because it's it will be not good for you if you have all the people with, in control of armies, which uh, I suppose is what the, yeah, the Targaryens tries to do in Westeros. It's like, yeah. you know, no one else can do this. They never pulled that off at Valyria. It remained a freehold yeah. till the end, but you're right. That's uh, you're right. The Targaryens tried to... It helps when you've got all the other dragon families dead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about the only game in town. Yeah. That, that's really fascinating. So here's a question segueing in, into our next subtopic, the first Valyrian Wars with the Giscari, which as we have shown are, have some nice parallels to the Punic Wars. What did the transition to Imperial Era from Republic Era, did that how did that change slavery or did it? Did it increase their need for slaves or was it about the same? Because I know Valyria, as it expanded more, it's, it's need for minerals and, and just more laborers and, and quote unquote need, desire for, greed for, want. How does that, did that change or was it, yeah, talk to us about that. It definitely changes. It, yeah, it changes in a few different ways. So you've got the, uh, one of the main, I guess, not that the Romans would say this themselves, they'd say they were the, the victims of a series of wars that gave them an empire. But what happens is they go off, they go and steal all the things from all their neighbors until they've got control of the whole Mediterranean. Mm. And then there's a point at which they stop. And then all of a sudden, they're not going off, they're not winning wars. That supply of wealth and of slaves just dries up. So it has a few different benefits, or not the benefits, uh, a few different effects. <laughs> where there's like a change in slavery, where there's uh, both in terms of like wealth extraction, how that gets focused. You're using slaves in a more wealth intent, wealth generation intense way. And they 
get looked after better. All of a sudden, there aren't cheap slaves mm. coming in because there isn't a constant series of wars. Mm. The condition of slaves becomes good because you need to look after your slave because it's really expensive to go and buy another one. The price goes up. Yeah, supply and demand. Yeah. It's awful to think about humans that way, but that is, that's accurate. And then further down the line, after you get about a century of the, they start to have, it, it, the situation gets um, bad because when you've got an economy built on slaves and you're not getting slaves, you start to get problems. So they'll invent wars specifically to go and get slaves. So that's why Trajan invades uh, Dacia, like modern day Romania, which is a really bad strategic idea when you've got like a nice border on the, on the Danube to suddenly go and stick a province on the other side of it, which is really vulnerable to attack. Mm. Um, but they do it just because they need to get slaves. And then Trajan goes off and he invades Persia, which uh, again, doesn't go well and sort of sets off a series of civil wars that nearly completely destabilized the empire in about the year 120. So yeah, the empire starts to get desperate in its ways to try and get more slaves. Wow. So it's really, so there's a note I have later in the document that really appears to be relevant here, which is that they had to start wars, had to quote in, in quotes, had to start wars to get more slaves to feed the, the need that they had created for themselves. They're like, yep, well, we, mm -hmm. we've set up this system. It requires more bodies added to it constantly and we're running out of them. So we have to go do more conquering. So yeah, it's really a system that feeds itself. It's really a gross cycle of perpetuation there. There's a lot of uh, arrogance involved in it too, a lot of self-centeredness, because I, I think it was even Aristotle who who had this idea that like the Greeks were what everyone, what the rest of the world is here for us. We need all these other cultures to serve us. And uh, the Spartans, the same thing. There were laws against Spartans performing menial duties. They weren't allowed to be farmers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Only the slaves could do that. We, we, that's not our thing. We train. Know? We train for the next war yeah. <laughs> or scare people. So, Jamie, uh, yeah, talk about that for a minute. Actually, I'm curious about how this would play out in re in regards to, well, like you said, in terms of, of wealth generation, like you said, they they would, rather than just service and basic needs, like the farming that Sean talked about, mm -hmm. they started using them for like mining and things like that, which is just straightforward. You're spending bodies to get wealth out of the earth. And that's 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 what we think about with Valeria quite a lot. Surely the slaves were doing all sorts of things other as well, but this is one of the most like the one of the worst things to imagine as far as that that goes. Is does that resonate pretty similarly there as well? Yeah. What you end up with when you've got these sort of highly competitive oligarchies, um, which I mean, even in the imperial period, while the the emperor is in control of everything politically. There's still like the social oligarchy that's still competing for dominance. You still want to be the top family. And how can you be the top family by showing off how much money you've got so you, you flaunt it? And so what happens <laughs> is you've got all these families who are trying to be extravagant to show off how much money they've got. And they're spending it on luxury resources that are often... For, and what are luxury resources? They're things that you can't easily access. So for the Romans, it was things like spices, like silk that came from China, that came from Asia, that came from Arabia. So you've got this wealth drain that goes on over two or 300 years where just gold is just sucked out of Rome and works its way over to China. 
if you look in like Chinese archaeological sites from the, the Han Dynasty, it's full of Roman coins, that it, it all ends up there. Um, so what the emperors do, because they can see this is happening, like the Romans aren't generally good at economics, but they can spot that all this gold is leaving. <laughs> they start to sh- implement like laws prohibiting luxury, that you're not allowed to... Oh. Be so extravagant. You're not allowed to wear certain garments. You can't do things that cost too much money just because it's being spent away when the empire doesn't have that inbuilt wealth hmm. that it can generate without slaves. So I'd see you'd probably have a, a similar thing in the with the forced families in Valeria that how are they going to compete with each other? They're going to be showing off that they're the most powerful, they're the wealthiest. And so they'll just frisk it through through their resources mm. and they need more so they need to go and get more from other people wow. and it's become this, this cycle and when you don't have an emperor who can forbid it who can put a stop to it that's just going to carry on until boom yeah that's something we made a big point about last time is how these families really have there's no one keeping them in check unless they threaten the other family's power then they may team up on each other but if they're just out there doing things like this, unless it makes them a threat to the others, then yeah, anything goes. Um, you know, you mentioned uh, Tywin, but didn't didn't someone tell Danny that Khal Drago was so wealthy that his slaves had golden collars? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Good catch. Yeah. You're absolutely right. He was that's just true. so much conquering and destroying and, and the Thraki are interesting because they don't like, they don't have these palatial estates to spend money on, right? They're mostly just out in the field. <laughs> like, he owned a manse in Pentos, but how often was he there? I mean, he didn't, he's all, he's mostly on the, the Thraki Sea. So Sean, referring to your question about Aristotle, your point about Aristotle, here's another question I wanted to ask and we have a lot of curiosity about. It's increasingly harder in the modern world and it's a very good thing to justify wars of aggression. People still do it, it still happens, but it's harder and harder. Like the world opinion is generally focused against the aggressor. That's a very good thing. In the ancient world, it's not nearly like that, but there still were the need for justification sometimes are just a lot looser, I guess it's fair to say. But was it like what Sean says about Aristotle where they just see themselves as more important than everyone else? Or, or what kind of justification do they use? Or did they just not need justifications? Do they just say, eh, I'm better than you. I can do whatever I want. I kill you. I make, I enslave you. That's the way of the world. What's their philosophy or attitude or... Well, sometimes they might have to justify it to their own people because they're going to take farmers away from the crops and good men good are going to go die. So they have to have some amount of justification. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think most cultures generally like to regard themselves as the good guys. And I think people will tend to do a lot to make sure that that's at least how things appear. Like Even if they want something that their neighbor has, they'll work out a way in their own heads of, okay, how can I justify this? Oh, that 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 other state offended me. They they were rude to our diplomats. That's just reason to go and kill them. So you'll get things like that. That's how I think I mentioned earlier about Rome accidentally expanding. That <laughs> if you look at Roman history, that's how they treat it. It's like a series of Oops. accidents that gave them <laughs> conquered our neighbor. Oops, conquered the new neighbor. <laughs> yeah, it's literally like that. There are things like oh we. They need to protect the salt pans at the mouth of the Tiber. So there's a nearby city called Vio. Um, and it's like, oh, they threaten our access to salt. Without salt, we won't be able to feed ourselves. Like, we, we need this. It's, we will be destroyed if we don't go and destroy this threat to the salt fields. <laughs> so there's a war with Vio. They, they take them out. And then, oh, look, we've got this new city and we've got these salt fields. And then it'll 
work its way up to eventually really complicated sets of ways to justify that they're actually the victims here. Like how the Punic Wars break out is an absolute joke. That's the, a great um, segue. Let's. We were, I wanted to go to that next, yeah. so let's do it. Yeah, tell us about that. There are a group of renegade mercenaries called the Mamertines who seize a city in Sicily. Then Carthage, which is the power in Sicily, um, along with the city of Syracuse, is, hey, that's not good. Uh, <laughs> and then you these... <laughs> These renegade mercenaries who happen to be Italian, uh, they appeal to Rome and they say, hey, we're, we're Roman, these, these Carthaginians, they're trying to kick us. You should come protect us. You're, we're, we're the same, you and I. And then Rome's, yep, that's a good thing. We'll protect <laughs> you. Let's, let's go invade Sicily <laughs> to help our own. And then that sparks like a 120-year-long conflict with Carthage. Yeah, I remember reading about the Mamertines. Didn't they just basically they took the whole city over and they killed all the, the the men and just took every mercenary got a new family, got to take the family. They chose families of the men they killed. I'm your new dad. I'm your new husband, and this is my house now. It's like a it's like a sitcom where the actor changes. The dad actor just changes all of a sudden, except it's far more violent. I was going to say it's like a horror movie. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, yeah. It's, it's a horror, a horror sitcom. Time on. Yeah. <laughs> like WandaVision, you know. <laughs> so let's have a quote. Um, wars with the Giscari. Typical George fashion. Three Punic Wars. Five wars between Valeria and the Giscari. He likes to turn it up a notch. <laughs> let's have the quote. The five great wars between the Freehold and Bulgus when the world was young are the stuff of legend. Conflagrations that ended each time in the victory of the Valerians over the Giscari. It was during the fifth and final war that the Freehold chose to make sure there would be no sixth war. The ancient brick walls of Bulgis, first raised by Grazdan the Great in ancient days, were raised. Raised by raised. Yeah, they were raised and then <laughs> raised. <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious. So that's no, that's the opposite thing. <laughs> that's hilarious. George, he's he's sneaky like that. So this is one. There's a lot of things about old guests, both large and small, that remind me of Carthage. Let's talk about that for a minute, since we spent a lot of time on Rome and and uh, Valeria. But before we come back to that, for example, when you're reading about Carthage, there's five names: <laughs> Hanno, Hannibal, Hamilcar, Mago. And like Himmelco, and then and they, these names just repeat over and over. There's, there's so much confusion about was that the same Himmelco or the same Hamilcar or the same? And there's a bajillion Grazdans <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the Giscari uh, Empire. So that's a small comparison. Other than that, yeah, Carthage was older than than Rome. Uh, the Punic people, the Phoenicians, Punic Phoenician—that's where that comes from—was older than Rome. And and but the freehold Valeria overtook Greece, just like the Valerians overtook Carthage. And this bit about the, how it ended, that's pretty similar too, right? The third war was just, the third Punic war was just like, nah, we're not doing this again. We're making sure this is the last one. Is that, that's, that's pretty similar, huh? Yep. Three times is enough. Can't be doing this again. Don't want to go to Africa one more time. <laughs> Let's just burn down the city. Yeah. Just and took the walls you know, down, right? That was a part of it, right? They destroyed the walls and yeah. Yeah. Hmm. There wasn't another war, but the city of Carthage did rise again to be a prominent, like, one of the it's most prominent spots in the Mediterranean. Right? It's just a great yeah, location. Yeah. You can't change that. <laughs> Unless there's a volcanic eruption that destroys the whole, <laughs> you know. <like. laughs> the spot's just really good, right? Yeah, perfect. Spot between east and west Mediterranean. I and mean, yeah, Tuna's still 
massive port there. Yeah, still today, right? Yeah. So there's yeah. This, this story that's also similar. And with the Valyrians and the Giscari, we don't get a lot of details about how these wars went other than it was the Freehold always won. There's The Punic Wars are pretty well documented, though, as far as the real world goes. But they had a really wide theater. That's why this comparing Slaver's Bay to the Mediterranean was something I wanted to, to lay the groundwork for because they're fighting all over. They're not just like striking at each other's capitals. In the Second Punic War, fighting over Spain was where it started. The Carthaginians invaded Spain, which used to be theirs, and they wanted to take it back. And that was really important because there's lots of silver mines there. So there's a lot of wealth. So like whichever side controlled those silver mines gets a bit of an edge. And of course, it's across the water. So they would have a land route. So that's the strategic value to that. For example, in, in Martin World, in the third Giscari Valyrian War, they fought in the Basilisk Isles, which is interesting, right? They, they were fighting over these small islands. There was the Gorgai, which was founded by Giscari people, and then it was captured and renamed Gogassos. We've got a whole bonus episode on that one. That's pretty cool. It's a city of blood magic. It was almost the 10th free city. It's very creepy and cool. And in the fourth Giscari Valyrian War, they, they fought over Zamatar. Zamatar was a Giscari colony that the Valyrians conquered and took over. And that's mainland Sothoria. They're fighting over mainland Sothoria. Now, this to me is very similar to what they're doing with the mines, which is there's a lot of wealth in Sothorios, but it's deadly. Well, perfect situation to send your hapless slaves into. Well, I don't, they don't care what happens to the slaves. If they send in 10 slaves and nine of those slaves die, but that one slave comes out with pounds of gold and gems, they're going to call that a win, as gross as it is. It doesn't take, it's hard, not hard to understand that. So pretty bad. But you also see why they're fighting over all these different places everywhere throughout the, the theater of war, because there's wealth and, and value that's creating armies or creating things that are arrayed against the other nation. Let's talk about that briefly, Jamie. What was about the, the expansion? It's almost like a, a world, ancient world war where the, the world is the Mediterranean world and it's basically being fought all over. Is that, is that pretty accurate or was that just maybe more the Second Punic War or, or is it both of them? Or just talk about that for a bit. First two are quite massive. The second one is bigger than the first, but they're all quite large, um, like nothing the Western Mediterranean had ever seen before. Mm. Like you don't have armies this large, fleets this large, fighting over such a wide geographical area. I mean, for the, like in the Second Punic War in particular, when both Carthage and Rome are going hell to leather, it is a, a war of where the other side needs to put its dominance on that half of the Mediterranean. The other the side that wins is going to get it. Like similarity there. Where I think when you talk about the different geographical areas, like the the commerce, like I think to go way back to the beginning when I was talking about the Iscari being a bit like the Phoenicians, I was getting at like the importance of trading posts. Like it's a very widespread empire, but it's not land based. It's more like a series of interconnected ports Ooh. that are yeah, so quite commerce based, and they need access to that. Like that's how the empire is going to function. Like through the, these things, they need to be connected, and then if you're going to defeat them, what you need to do is cut off these separate entities from each other. And a lot of the Second Punic War is Rome trying to do that against Carthage. How it ultimately succeeds is when it can finally cut off Hannibal in Italy from his reinforcements in Spain and the potential reinforcements in Africa. Like that ability to get control of the, the trade routes of being able to move different forces between them. Like that's what they need to do uh, to win. Valyria would have a so, huge uh, edge there with the dragons being able to control the seas and all that. That would be just a huge, huge advantage. 
yeah, if you're able to cut off a colony by itself, it's just going to die rather than like a stronghold that can be easily reinforced. It's like a completely different proposition. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. Hannibal did, by the way, he, he basically held Italy for a generation. Was right? it like, how like, long was he in it? Like 15 years or something like that? Or Yeah, about 15 years yeah. marching around Italy. One of the bits that made me fall in love with the Punic Wars and why I wanted to tell that story in my show is the, is Livy, who tells the story in so much detail. And he does like a blow-by-blow account of each year what happens. So you've got Hannibal going around like, after the initial battles where he just trounces the Romans, destroys the, the legions at Lake Trasimene at Cannae. Then you've got Hannibal going around taking cities from Rome and then Rome just falls around and takes it back like <laughs> weeks later. Like a and then game. that just kind of plays out really slowly over about 15 years. And all the while he's trying to get reinforcements and then the Carthage. This is an example of the oligarchy families yeah. like infighting, like they're not doing what's best for the nation, they're doing what's best for them. They wouldn't send him reinforcements because they were afraid of the Barca family making themselves kings or something like that. Is that pretty, is that pretty accurate? Yeah, they don't want Hannibal to be all-powerful. If he's the, the conqueror of the Western Mediterranean, what are they? They'd, they'd rather be a big fish in a small pond than a subject. That, that really blew up in their faces, didn't it? <laughs> Next thing they know, <laughs> Hannibal's bringing his army back to defend the homeland and then losing because he's outclassed and outnumbered. And then the city is destroyed. <laughs> yeah, pretty bad. What's the guy? Melinda S. Yeah, Carthage must be destroyed. Yeah, so that was that was how the third one started, right? There was this, a certain Roman senator that just const- ended every speech with, oh, Carthage, and by the way, Carthage must be destroyed. Like, he could be talking about trade routes to Syria. And he's, by the way, also, Carthage must be destroyed. <laughs> every, for about 30 years or so, Queso the Elder, he's just every speech yeah. finishes, yep, and the Carthage must be destroyed. You can imagine some Valyrian, like, high-born guy, like, getting up and just doing the same things. By the way, let's go attack uh, the Sarnori people. They've got some loot there. We all we all want that. And they're a threat to us. <laughs> Old Gis must be destroyed. Yeah, yeah. Old Gis. The Great Pyramid must be shattered. All right, let's take the next quote here that describes a bit more of what was happening in these wars with a little bit of fun detail. Fun slash awful. (laughs) In the second and third Gistari Wars, the tall men took up their swords as allies of Valyria. In the fourth war, rival kings took opposite sides, some joining the Gistari and others the Valyrians. Lomas Longstrider wrote of a fallen obelisk carved about with the figures of Gis's allies in that fourth war and noted that the tallest warriors depicted, made taller by high helms, were the Sarnori. The obelisk was raised by Gis, but the carvings were Valyrian, for all the warriors were captured and enslaved. Now, this is this is allows us to talk about several things. The first one I'd like to point to or, or describe, get into, is that when you have a sort of a global world war, Mediterranean world war scenario, it's hard for anyone to remain neutral. That's one of the, like, the big powers start to bully people into taking sides. Of course, they want them to take their side. It's very hard to remain neutral. And I, I think that would be true in the, in the world of Essos as well, where in this example, the Sarnori, 
it, it shows that in different wars, they were on opposite sides. In two of them, they were on the side of Illyria, and in one side, they were on the Giscari, but some of the Sarnori city-states took the other side. So Sarnor wasn't some united nation either, and we see that with Greece. Sometimes they took... Like we saw Greek city-states taking the side of the Persians at some points, uh, partly because of bribery and a promise not to be annihilated, but you know, there's still, it happens. And that's probably the case here too. I imagine some of these Sarnori kings were jumping to take a side. They were probably like, let's see what we can get out of this. Let's say which side offers us a little inducement to take their side. It's more of an opportunity than we need to get involved in this war for justice. They, they see it as a prophet or, or going to be mad at us that we weren't on their side. How does that play out in the ancient world with these smaller nations? Or or in the case of Carthage and Rome, were, were there even these smaller nations, were they relevant even at this time? So arguably that kind of decides the war, I'd say. So you've got in the interior of Africa in like modern day Algeria, Numidia, which is famed for its cavalry. It has the best cavalry in the uh, Mediterranean. And they start off because they're next to Carthage. So they're on Carthage's side because they've got to be. And then it goes through until eventually the Romans are able to convince a potential king of the Numidians that if they support his claim to the throne, if he wins, then they'll join his side. And that's uh, Massinissa. And then when he does that, and he does eventually switch sides, he brings over the Numidian cavalry to the Roman side. Um, And because the Romans have terrible cavalry, they are awful assets. So that's partly how Hannibal does so well, is because he's able to... um, use his infantry to pin down the Roman line and then send his cavalry around the back. But when the Romans finally have a cavalry that can match the Carthaginian cavalry, then they're able to win, which is what eventually wins them the war at Zama. Mm. So that by being able to convince someone who was subordinate to your enemy and convince them to join their side, that what wins them the war. And then you've got something like Carthage's attempt to do that, where they form an alliance with Macedon, where they try and bring the uh, Macedonia over to invade Italy. Mm. Uh, the Romans set up like win, or they form a deal with a load of Greek states who are hostile to Macedon. And then there's like a war in Greece, which is essentially a way to keep Macedonia out of the main Punic War. And they eventually do that. They cause enough for trouble that the Macedonians can never send their army over to go help Hannibal out. Mm. So they're very, very important, even though they work in like slightly different ways. A lot of it is just domineering. There's not really much of a... Like what you'd see in the modern world wars, where it's like almost equal powers cooperating towards a common goal. It's a bit more Cold Warish, like whatever superpower. Oh. And bring their smaller states and cajole them onto their side. Okay. I love the modern parallels. It really helps understand it. We've got ancient world, we've got modern world, we got Martin world. It's like a triangle. It's a pyramid. <laughs> We're about to talk about the Great Pyramids too. <laughs> it's a pyramid scheme. Another little piece of Sparta here I want to bring up is that early on, generally speaking, Sparta was isolationist. Oh, yeah. They, they, their strong military might was just to keep their slave population in control. They didn't want to go out and attack other people. But when they did, well, guess what? They had some of their people, they start dying, they're spread thin, their whole empire falls apart. But but I, I partly bring this up because, yeah, they were, they were trying to be neutral. You know what I mean? Like some some nations in these conflicts did try to be neutrals. Let's talk about this mm-hmm. this aspect of, of trophies, the obelisk and the, the carvings, the Valyrian carvings and showing the depictions of de- defeat and... and we, 
and all that. Nina writes that, that mention of a fallen obelisk carved with the defeated Giscari allies seems like another reference to Rome, pulling inspiration from triumphal, triumphal victory columns like Trajan's and Marcus Aurelius. It seems like that's a somewhat standard thing across a lot of cultures to erect victory monuments or statues or something like that. Let's, let's talk about that for a minute. There was a literal obelisk that Augustus took when he defeated Mark Antony and Cleopatra oh. after they conquered Egypt. And they took that obelisk and erected it in Rome. So yeah, that's that's a definite Roman thing, doing that. And then, yeah, you put up a big monuments with all the wealth that you've got and you decorate them with scenes of battles, with descriptions of what a great guy you are and how <laughs> horrible the enemy are. <laughs> yeah, one of the maybe a possible Martin World world wonder... Uh, could have been. Lomas Longstrider, only who was the guy that designated what was and what wasn't a world wonder, got to visit the Great Pyramid of Old Gis after it had been destroyed. So had it been whole, he may have nominated it as such because he he saw the base of it. it was like, oh my God, this is gigantic. There wasn't much else left. But that leads us to this great quote, great quote of devastation and death. The colossal pyramids and temples and homes were given over to dragon flame. The fields were sown with salt, lime, and skulls. Many of the Giscari were slain, and still others were enslaved and died laboring and for laboring for their conquerors. Thus, the Giscari became but another part of the new Valerian Empire. And in time, they forgot the tongue that Grazdan spoke, learning instead High Valerian. So do empires end and others arise. So do. <laughs> yeah, I've read similar stories about how Rome finished off cards. We've all heard that salt, sowing the salt into the fields. That's probably, that probably didn't happen though, did it? Like salt, as you said before, yeah. salt was like a, an important resource. You don't just throw that away. Yeah, that's pretty much considered a myth at this point. Okay. So, yeah. yeah, But the rest... They might have done it symbolically over some small portion of land, but yeah. The rest of it's pretty, pretty accurate though, I guess. They were pretty thorough with their devastation of, of it all, I would guess. Oh yeah, you want to make sure that they, after you've gone to that much trouble, that many wars, there's a, a point at which you want to make sure that they, they can't do that again. And then the integration of its side, I think that's, that speaks to I like the use of the, the, the tongue, the language mm. is like one of the most powerful ways to like impose dominance. Like that's arguably one of the reasons for the success of the Roman Empire mm. is like how successfully they spread Latin as the language that the Western Mediterranean uses. Mm. I mean, Greek still used a lot in the East, but when you look at the native languages spoken by like the, the Celts and the Iberians, they just disappear. We don't really know what they are anymore. It's just wow. um, like Latin is the root of French, same Spanish, Italian. Like all the other languages just get lost along the way. Mm. And that's how it translates into the culture of today is like through that, through the language. Mm. So if you want to... and. Uh, from saying earlier about the Spanish emperors, that they consider themselves Romans. They don't consider themselves Spaniards. And part of it is that they've grown up speaking Latin. They just consider themselves Latin. So if you want to dominate your opposition, you make them speak your language, they'll eventually start thinking like you, like think that they're part of you. And then that's how you, yeah, get a, a, a stable empire mm. out of it. As we talked about last time, one of the keys to Valyrian supremacy is quite obviously dragons. And we talked a little bit how those dragons got used. And what we find is given their attitude towards human life, which is very cynical and, and wasteful and awful, they're not even the slightest chance of risk to a dragon generally means they'd rather just lose some, some foot soldiers. So because the dragons are the source of their power, they're reluctant to use them. So I think that is something that you have to keep in mind when we're 
conceiving or imagining these Valyrian Wars is that Nina says here, what I find really interesting is that there were at least some major Valyrian losses if Hisdar's tapestry of a defeated Valyrian army being dragged off into slavery by the Giscari victors can be believed. Even though it seems like the Valyrians had dragons from their earliest times, and certainly by the fifth Giscari War, dragons were certainly not, not an automatic win button. The Valyrians were not the guaranteed victors in this conflict. And yeah, and, and as I was saying, they're not always even involved in some of these wars or some of these individual battles. You know, the dragon lords are doing their own thing. They're not necessarily on the same page. They've got their own goals. That's their, their bottom line, their greed, their ambition is what they're worried about. They're not worried about the success of the nation unless it hurts them. Yeah, I guess sometimes it was also like a have your cake and eat it too situation. And yeah. They can't have their dragon and use it too. Yeah, mm, Valyrian <laughs> cake. Mm. This idea is one part of why I was thinking so much about <laughs> Valyrian cakes. <sorry. laughs> That's why I was thinking so much Volcano about Volcano cake, Sparta. for sure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Lava cake. <laughs> That's why I was thinking so much about Sparta that, that they had this very powerful, dominant, superior military might but they weren't going out and attacking other people. And that seems to be the case with Valeria. Early on, Valeria didn't have as many dragons and they needed all they had to just maintain this slave state that they had created. But over time, as the dragons get bigger and populate, now they can look to expand more. Maybe the, the core ideals of early Valerian leaders started to become more ambitious and they wanted to go out and attack more, some combination but early on, Valeria didn't have slaves. So I don't know. Maybe it yeah. doesn't totally add up. Uh, or maybe they didn't have it to this degree. Maybe it was like a proto version. Maybe they had like a thraldom. Or I don't know. Who knows? It's, it's, you're right. It's not clear. But it does. T- we are told in the world of Ice and Fire that they learned, quote unquote, learned slavery from the Giscari. There's a lot of ways to interpret that. I suppose one may be like they learned the intricacies of it, which is such a gross subject. But like the way that you can really manipulate people. They learned like the long-term, the things that the Giscari learned about how to mistreat people and how to get the desired result from human slaves. That's the kind of thing I think of. Because I think they weren't, I don't think the concept was completely foreign to them. Maybe it was. Maybe like the idea, it just seems like such a natural idea. It's unlikely to me. And it seems like there's too many parallels in Martin's world to the real world. And there's been slavery in every culture for all of history. Yeah, you know what I mean? Much, yeah. and, and, and like Native Americans had slavery. They didn't learn it from Europeans. You right, know, like right. it was it was arising everywhere through time, through all geographic. And, it, and it's a wide term too. It's a very broad term, uh, as you as you know. There's a, there's a difference between like slavery and a slave economy, mm-hmm. and I think it might. be... Oh yes, yeah. There you go. Yeah. Okay. But, it te- but you can have slaves, but having a whole economic system geared around slavery is quite something different. Right. Yeah. Okay. Maybe the Valerians had slaves from like some skirmish or people punished for some crime were put into slavery. But the idea that you could like amass huge amounts of slaves and create a, a, a factory or a quarry around the work that you wouldn't have even attempted because you didn't have the right labor for it. Now you can. Yeah, and you and wouldn't have... That's what they learned from Giscard. And from an internal system, you wouldn't just all of a sudden have 100,000 new captives that are made into slaves all at once. That wouldn't happen unless you're going out into the world and taking whole nations or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that, that happened yeah. with Rome and these other places a lot. Like all of a sudden, there'd be this massive influx. Um, yeah, you need to like the, the way to like for capturing the slaves in the first place, transporting them. Then once you've got them, what, where do you put them? They need to be clothed, fed, put in houses. Where do they go? If they're going to work on big projects, there needs to be like infrastructure around that, around the mines, there need to be mining towns. That takes so much time and thought to implement that. It's quite a conscious decision doing all of that. Right on. In America, when the cotton gin was invented, it was so efficient at separating the cotton 
it made it more worth farming more cotton, which meant they needed more slaves, right? So this new technology, this new need, this new demand caused in one area caused more demand for slaves. I wonder if something happened in Valeria to create a new demand for slaves. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. they, needed, even speculated, they needed to create more Valyrian steel. They need it for with blood yeah, sacrifice. Yeah. The metals, I think that's uh, a big one, yeah. yeah. Or if maybe it's something I've been speculating is that maybe they found out that a volcano was going to explode or some way to control volcanoes through mines. If they had some combination of engineering oh. and magic to go divert lava mm-hmm. flow to stop a massive eruption, but they needed a bunch of slaves to go do it. It's very dangerous. They don't want to send their own citizens yeah. in there, but... Oh. They don't have enough of their own citizens. Mm-hmm. All right, so we need to go get some more slaves to keep the world from blowing up. Wow. You know? Yeah, that's that's a really good point. From Here Be Dragons... Aziz is a veteran of the Punic Wars. That is true. I am a grizzled <laughs> veteran of the Punic Wars. Uh, and, <laughs> yes, and you too, Stephen. You you get uh, you've been promoted. You are you're now Field Marshal Stephen. Uh, yes. So Stephen, of course, is the host of Here Be Dragons, where Sean is going to be doing a double duty live stream right after this. Head over to Here Be Dragons to to hear Sean talk about all his nerdy lifestyle stuff that we all appreciate. That. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Tony Sled sends a super chat and says, Valyrian expansion seems to be based on political clashes within their culture we are not privy to, and it seems like they fought amongst themselves. Oh, yeah, for sure. That's a, that's a great point. Lots of political clashes. That's part of why, that's part of the, the a system that like the imperial system would cut back on, but a system like this, without some leader above them, yeah, there's no one to stop them from infighting, no one strong enough to stop them other than each other. So yeah, I think that's very true. Would you, would you agree with that, Jamie, what Tony's saying here? Yeah, definitely. Right on. I think you've got that. Uh, yeah, it is going to drive things. That competition mm-hmm. just drives everything. So let's see here. We have from J.S. Holgerson. We have a recurring request from the fans. Whenever we have a guest on, they want y'all to say Irish wristwatch three times fast. So, Jamie. What? Irish wristwatch. I could have said you can't, you can't okay. I'm gonna try again. Yes, try again. again. You underestimated the difficulty level. <laughs> Irish wish. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's hard. Irish wish. Irish wish. Wow, we really stumped him. We got him. We got him. We broke our guest. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, we <laughs> he made his attempt. <laughs> okay, so Sean, you had a few items from last week that you wanted to refer to, like a little follow up. So let's do that real quick before we move back to our main oh, yeah. topic. One was I thought a very humorous thought that someone had in the in the chat in our last video, Feral seventy five. I want to give credit. 
What is a, a group or a gathering or a collection of dragons called? Like you have like a herd of cattle or a murder of crows or a flock of it's geese. It's obviously a dance of dragons. A dance. <laughs> oh, a dance of dragons. Oh, there you go. Shea nails it. Yeah. Wow, it's going to be hard to top. A dance of dragons. Yeah. Well, he, uh, Feral 75 said, yeah, Inferno of dragons, darkness of dragons. That's pretty good. I volcano like of dragons. A volcano of dragons. Yeah. A maw of dragons. Yeah, folks, if you've got an idea, send it, put it in the chat. Or, or tweet it at us or whatever you got. Yeah, that, we're, we're curious to hear your group word for dragons. What's the best collection of dragons name? <laughs> Another thing I wanted to clarify, last week I said that aluminum was the most common element. I meant to say the most common metal. Oh, okay. It's the most common metal on Earth. And I should, as long as I'm clarifying, on, when I say on Earth, I mean on the crust of Earth. It's the, I think the third most common element on the crust is aluminum. Oxygen is number one. It's the aluminum is like seventh most all over on like a whole planet. Oxygen is number one overall, but mm. aluminum is the most common metal cool. on the crust of the earth. All right. Good to know. Right, let's talk a little more about the uh, comparing different types of slavery here and ask some specific questions. Start off with a brief two sentence quote, Sean. The Valerians learned one deplorable thing from the Giscari slavery. The Giscari who they conquered were the first to be thus enslaved but not the last. So it, may, it certainly makes it sound like they're the first foreign people they enslaved. As we speculated, maybe they had some internal system for their own people, but that's that's just guesswork. Now we see some, in Song of Ice and Fire, some of the portrayals we see of slavery, whether it's in Volantis, where you have a full-blown slave economy, where the slaves vastly outnumber the citizens, which is something that all, is accurate to a few places in the real world in ancient times. Basic stuff like rank and file jobs, laboring, that's all very straightforward. But there's a few other examples that we see portrayed that I wonder, we want to talk about how they play out in the real world. For example, like tattoos. In Volantis, slaves are marked with a tattoo to indicate their specific job. Was tattooing slaves, is that ancient world thing? And did it work similarly? Or were there other purposes to it? Was it like, a, was it like an ownership thing? Or was there something else to it? So in certain circumstances, you'd get it. Uh, like to mark ownership or as runaway slaves. But the... It's less common, uh, like particularly in the, the Roman world, mainly because of the, the expectation that there are ways out of slavery. And once you're out of slavery, you're not a slave anymore. Like the stigma goes away from it. Now, that transition of legal status, like it's a lot less permanent in a way that tattoos aren't. The, the idea that you'll always move away from it, there's not a permanence to it. Okay, so let me, let me ask this one then. It says a similar question then. Examples of the example we just gave, like Belantis, where there's more slaves than people. Was there a lot of other ancient world examples like that, or was that uncommon? Did Rome eventually get to that point itself, the city of Rome, or or not quite that far? The city of Rome got close, probably about half wow. slaves. Okay. Athens was the main one from the of the ancient world. I'd say a figure I think in Lysias, that's it, but where he talks about the population breakdown of Athens, and it's that there were 10,000 free citizens. So that is Athenians who are, they have citizenship, they own land. Then you have 30,000 Metics who are non-natives, they're like foreigners who are living in Athens. And then you have 250,000 slaves. Um, oh yeah, massive difference there. That Nice democracy Athens, they had there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Pinnacle of democracy in the ancient world. <laughs> and that, that would have, it's worth noting, that would have varied through time. Like sure, at one yeah. point, Athens was only 30% slaves. And I don't know, so he, my guess is the percent probably grew and grew and did not shrink. But, so that's probably the peak yeah, that, you're referring to there, Jamie, the, the, that 250k? That's about 420 BC. Oh. So, heist of classical Athens. Okay. 
Yeah. And and I, I'm sure the different city states had different structures. And I, I'm not an expert on any of them, but I am just aware that Sparta and Athens and a lot of the cities had tiers of, of slavery. Like you were saying, there's mm-hmm. there were even within those ones you said, I, I know a little bit less of Athens at that moment, but there would be like someone who was born a free Athenian to someone who owned land. Right. That's like the highest level that you could get at. Then someone who was born to a free Athenian or Spartan or whoever, but they didn't own land. Then someone who was born to a former slave that had earned their freedom. Then someone who was born to a slave. These are all different levels who would have different levels of rights and access and, and social value and all and that. So yeah, like yeah. be treated yeah. for their background. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. yeah, Rome's very big on that. I think they have like different tiers for like how old you were when you became free and something called like Julian citizenship, which is like a half citizenship where you have some rights, but not all of them. Mm. And then you have that for a certain time and then your children will, prop, depending on when you were made free, will get certain rights. And some slaves yeah. would be educated. They might be put oh, in yeah. charge of an estate. Some slaves would be sent to the mines and whipped. There would be like a range of how they were treated and where they were put. And that, so. That's a great segue. I wanted to bring that subject up. Yeah, you have like very highly educated slaves that, that were teaching the Roman kids, like patricians, children, uh, their tutors. They're like, wasn't Plato enslaved for a while? But they were like very like high educated. Okay. Yeah, like big names. Sometimes like they spent time in slavery like that. And that's, they weren't usually a big name like that is an example. Someone who goes to the mines, they get, they, they're, used for their knowledge. George addresses this too, right? That's the dilemma for Danny, that some of the slaves that she's freed, they had sort of like jobs and, and prestige even that she has disrupted. And it's it's not as black and white, yeah. you know, as all slaves are terribly suffering. And and they when you free them, they suddenly became happy and wealthy. You know, some it's of them, not it, that Their simple. lot in life did decline, actually decline as... as tough to suss out or intuit that it's uh, it is true especially if you're like yeah. really an old an older person now you don't have a house anymore you know where to live i mean yeah that is yeah it's it's part of the the whole conundrum with breaking an existing system i suppose adam smith believed that free nations would never free their slaves because they wouldn't punish themselves the, the you know oh. they, they weren't really free and these people who were thinking of themselves as being freedom lovers but own slaves, they would never punish themselves for owning the slaves. And he thought that only a central government, a king, someone with, or, or the Pope, someone with authority could, they could force and punish people who were doing a wrong thing would end slavery. That's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he had some points. It took war. I mean, think about all the different ways slavery has been stopped around the world. It's usually like someone, some, some powerful person or group of people had to like really put the hammer down. It didn't just stop on its own. Nina supplies perhaps one of the greatest real world examples of slave population outnumbering, at least in a more modern example, which is Haiti. Pre-revolution Haiti, where 90% of the population was enslaved. And as Jamie said, Athens, up to 250,000 slaves. So those are examples of uh, very different sized nations. Like obviously Rome, Athens, huge well, Athens wasn't huge, but its its reach was huge, especially at its height. It was controlling. It was relatively huge for that time. Of yeah, it had history. a maritime yeah. hegemony of sorts. Yeah, and they were doing some pretty awful stuff with that. But uh, yeah, but uh, Haiti is off, very awful, but it was an aspect of the French uh, hegemony or control from far away. And uh, that's a whole subject. Let's talk about slave soldiers. That's a particularly relevant one for uh, Song of Ice and Fire. The Unsullied are a good example of 
George turning up the dial on real world slave armies, making these guys just ridiculously amazing. It throws a little magic in there with the the wine of courage, which is isn't explicitly magic in the setting, but I don't think there's anything like it in the real world. I guess actually, I guess you could say that certain drugs and there are like child soldiers are given like heroin or whatever to make them or PCP to make them crazy. It's not the same thing, but I guess there is an example. So Yeah, there uh, are examples of soldiers being drugged. Yeah, slave soldiers. The Germans and Nazis blitzkrieging across were almost certainly on some sort of methamphetamine. Yeah, right. And, and even Hitler was taking speed injections, apparently. Yeah. I mean, not for going into battle, but still just to focus or what have you. So let's talk about that. Uh, the first examples we have listed here for real world are the, the Janissaries and the Mamluks. Now, let's start off with, Jamie, you can maybe quickly describe what those are. I, I know of them only a little bit. I know they're both slave armies from different nations and raised as children to be slave soldiers. Yeah, so the Mamluks are a mainly uh, the most famous in later medieval Egypt as a group of, I guess, like children mistaken from modern-day southern Russia, the Caucasus, they're enslaved, they're taken through to Egypt, and then they're brought up as like their own separate like society within Egypt as initially like the, the soldiers to protect the sultan, and then eventually they get rid of the sultan and take control of Egypt and just rule Egypt <laughs> as like a, a warrior case for like 700 years. That's a pretty successful... Um, does that even count as a slave uprising? Would that count as a slave uprising, or is that... It might do. Yeah. It's, hmm. That's really interesting. Yeah. Mam- the Mamluks also you, defeated the were one of the first to defeat the Mongols, right, or the yeah. first, yeah, something like that. They stopped the Mongols uh, getting into into Egypt. They did that. It's a pretty big feather in um, their cap. <laughs> of course, the Mongols were supplying slaves as well. They were like supplying the Mamluks through the trade routes. Really? <laughs> Whoops. <Yeah. laughs> Talk about yeah. It's like the Valyrians torching their own empire by digging too deep and blowing themselves up or however that actually happened. Yeah. <laughs> it's like supplying your yeah. enemy with the tools to destroy you. <laughs> Interesting. Huh. And what about the Janissaries? Then the Janissaries were Ottoman um, soldiers who were taken from like the European possessions as children. They were Christians taken away, brought up as Islamic as yeah, soldiers for the empire. So by being taken away from their family at such a young age, you just their whole life became the Janissaries. Mm. They became like a crucial arm of the uh, the Ottoman Empire and its expansion and its decline. Were these soldiers castrated like the Unsullied? I don't think they're castrated, but they were not allowed to like legally have children. Like they couldn't pass on any inheritance, any roles. Okay, so it was like the they couldn't continue that group. They had to go out and get more rather than being able to expand the group from within, that kind of thing. Okay. Was there anything else particularly interesting about their training that's maybe similar to the Unsullied other than just like extreme martial training? Or was there any sort of... Obviously, there's, there must have been behavioral training to keep them loyal, which with the Mamluks didn't work out. Did, what was the long term on the Janissaries too while you're at it? How did that happen? All so badly. I'd say generally like slave soldiers are not a good idea because if you've got enslaved people like if you want to keep them enslaved, giving them all the weapons. <laughs> yeah, you kind of, the intuitive <laughs> nature of that arrangement does show itself. <laughs> yeah. So the, the Mamluks, yeah, they take over and they end up ruling Egypt. What happens with the Janissaries is they eventually wield a lot of power. They're the they're so close to the sultan, they're protecting him, they have all the influence. So they start thinking, okay, well, what we're going to do is protect ourselves. And so it becomes 
less disciplined it becomes like more luxurious it becomes like a drain on resources they stop like innovating they stop being that interested in martial training Mm. and then eventually some people start to think oh wait maybe we need to do something about this let's reform oh wait all the people with the weapons are the janissaries so they quash anything like that and the Ottoman Empire ends up stagnating. Wow. And it takes many like civil wars for them to eventually get rid of the Janissaries, that they're such a drain on it. To the extent that the Ottoman Empire gets known as the sick man of Europe <laughs> because it's stuck in this lethargy for 200 years wow. where it can't reform anything because the people who control the military aren't going to do any reforms because they're the people who'd suffer. They're like, oh, we've got this very cushy life. We've got all the weapons. We've got all the money. Why would we change things? Hmm. That makes sense. Wow. Are there any other maybe famous examples worth tossing out as a brief mention? Or Because I, I, I don't know of any others out there in, in history. Maybe there were some like in the Far East or maybe other nations. There are some similar things. I, I'm not quite slavery, but the British Empire with press ganging oh, people into yeah, the Navy. It's awful. Yeah. But yeah, if you're poor. It's like, well, you're, you're part of the Royal Navy now. You'll be stuck in this ship in the dark. Go sail around the world being fired at by the French. Let me, yeah. let me clarify what a press gang is to folks out there, just in case you're not clear on it. Basically, a lot of times you would have a situation where you're a dude, you're at a bar, you're someone who comes up and offers you to, to buy you a bunch of drinks. Next thing you know, you're passed out and you wake up on a ship and you've been conscripted. Now, you, now you're on that crew. And if you do anything, if you try to act out and you get punished as if like in a military situation, if you don't follow orders, you get beaten or whatever. Yeah. So you're for as forced conscription. That's it's essentially mm-hmm. slavery. You can't you literally can't leave. You're on a ship. I mean, where are you going to mm-hmm. go? And that scenario is a little more unique than what we've been talking about, because it's hard for them to rise up, right? Like, individual people scattered around ships across the ocean, they can't coordinate and rise up. You know what I mean? You don't have 90% of the ship isn't (laughs) conscripted in there. Two or three guys, they're just stuck. There's no, you don't get revolts from that. Well, you you do because it was part of what the Americans were upset with the British for. Like it it, it can lead to it if it's pervasive. Eventually, yeah. Like eventually it can, it can, the system can blow up on itself, but it can take a while before that the rot in the system creeps in or what have you. And then, but that's also a great segue, Sean, because we have, for example, the nation of Bravos was founded by sailors who overthrew the slavers on the ships that they were forced to row on and we're going to go make ourselves a new nation here in Bravos. So in that case, as an example where there were so many slaves, they were able to rise up because the, the master, the group of masters was small enough and there were, the slave population massively outnumbered them. And I want to talk about that with sailors. That's really relevant because we may have right now at the end of A Dance with Dragons, the Volantine fleet is headed towards Slaver's Bay and they're headed to overthrow the breaker of shackle, breaker breaker of shackles. That's almost as hard as Irish wristwatch. And <laughs> they're like, "Oh, we're gonna kill the dragon queen." And people are like, "You're sending a lot of slaves towards the person that is known for freeing slaves, right?" Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they're 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 wielding weapons and pirating, like leading the ones rowing the ships. Like she might just they might just turn join her. Have you thought about that at all? So I think George is setting up a lot of these slave systems to fall as he did in the past with Valyria. Uh, he, he makes them really awful in part because it allows him to destroy them and, and then we get to go, yes, <laughs> something for us to celebrate. <laughs> I, I want to point out one way that the Spartans used their slaves at, from a logistical standpoint. They had them 
manage the supplies to the military. Yeah. They didn't give them the weapons, but they're like, bring the, you're coming along to help us move our supplies. I can't think of an example in the in Martin world of that, but it seems like a good way. It would have to be, like, yeah. I don't want to be. Slaves yeah. in battle. Yeah, you definitely see that like around some of the, the tents of the Miranese. There's just like dudes who are in tr- helping people get dressed and all that. It's not like a big point of discussion, but it's definitely there. Even modern war, that's a forgotten thing. Like not slaves necessarily. There's lots of like women who helped like load cannons and run gunpowder back and forth on the front lines. They were in just as much danger as almost any other soldier, but their like role was essentially forgotten. And this is a similar thing here. You've got slaves who probably, like you said, didn't ever wield a sword or pick up a weapon, but were like arrows flying around, cannonballs or catapult stones or fire. Leaving their homes and farms and families behind to do it. Yeah, all that stuff. George gives us the opportunity to do is in his writing, he leaves room for us to think about the the, the forgotten people and uh, apply that to the real world a little bit or a lot. Sean, you know, I forgot to ask as we always do, what you were drinking today. Mm. Better late than never. Oh. What are you drinking today? <laughs> well, this it's just the blood of a dragon. Oh, that's fake. That makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. But this is the, the Rainbow Machine Naked Drink mixed with the Strawberry Bang mixed with Raspberry Sparkling Ice. Mm. Okay, next quote. This refers to a lot of the, the mining and the demand, the, the hunger for resources and slaves and all that. None can say how many perished toiling in the Valyrian mines, but the number was so large as to almost defy comprehension. As Valyria grew, its need for ore increased, which led to ever more conquests to keep the mines stocked with slaves. The Valyrians expanded in all directions, stretching out east beyond the Giscari cities and west to the very shores of Essos, where even the Giscari had not made inroads. This circles a little bit back to what we were discussing with regard to how the increase in demand increases the demand. The cycle just becomes permanent and ever-growing, and the hunger for wealth and slaves just, it's never possible to sate it, which is a symbol, a kind of a symbolic of the attitude of these people at the top that are ruling the nation. They are also endlessly hungering for power and wealth and, and uncaring as to who suffers for it. And This is also something to think about in terms of Rome and Carthage and and how these theaters of war were were operated. Uh, We talked about it before. The silver mines of Spain were a big deal. You read about ancient mining, and it's just one of the most horrible things that I've ever read about. Not just, and it's not just the treatment of the people, which by itself is is horrible, but it's also just like the massive ecological devastation. It's just horrible, right, Jamie? It's just, it's, it's, it's yeah. tough to read about. It's, I mean, a lot reading about the ancient world makes you very uncomfortable. Yeah, that's it, true. It, it, <laughs> it's yeah. one of things. That is, yeah, I, I can, th- there aren't many worse things that I, yeah, that you just wouldn't want to do than being stuck in a, one of those mines. Yeah, Nina mentions the Valerians putting slaves to work in brutal and extremely dangerous conditions. Not only the normal danger, George, of course, even this goes up a notch. Even the brutality of mining in his world is worse because of things like fireworms, which exist in these deep tunnels. (laughs) You've got creatures, fantasy creatures that are deadly and dangerous that don't exist in the real world. And she also uses Haiti again as an example where instead of mining, it's the sugar, sugar plantations, which maybe that doesn't sound so awful. I mean, it's slavery, so of course it sounds awful, but Sugar were like just sugar plantations, like the sugar was boiling hot, like the sugar pressing. You could like people lost limbs repeatedly, and you're already in the Caribbean. So imagine you're boiling 
And you're in tropical heat. I mean, that's just, uh, I mean, that, that might reach the level of these mines of terms of the intensity. It wouldn't reach the level of the toxic gases and, and the things like that. This is where the faceless men were formed. It was so intense that it spawned a, a whole like death cult religion that has some actual magic in it. Pretty, pretty savage. Yeah. So what about, what are some other examples? We I mentioned the, the Romans in Spain. What are some other maybe similar real world examples that, uh, that come to mind? The, I think the ultimate one would be the Spanish uh, colonies in Peru. I think that's oh, just the, really? in terms of slavery, that the treasure that, fleets and all that. Yeah, the yeah the mines in Peru and in in central Mexico that the scale of slavery involved. I think it, it's difficult to comprehend like how many millions of people died Goodness. in those mines. Though saying that about magical death cults, it's just made me wonder about sort of like voodoo and like the birth of oh, wow. sort of religious thing um, amongst a slave community. But that's an interesting. Analogy I hadn't really thought of before 30 hmm. seconds ago. All right. So moving on, further expansion. We got a pair of quotes here, different parts of the world of ice and fire um, that have a similar take here. With the fall of Olgis came the great surge of conquest and colonization from the freehold of Hilaria as they expanded their domains and sought more slaves. And then we also have... It was this first bursting forth of the new empire that was of paramount importance to Westeros and the future Seven Kingdoms. As Valyria sought to conquer more and more lands and peoples, some fled for safety, retreating before the Valyrian tide. That last line in particular refers to the Andals, but also the Rhoynar, of course, later, even though the, the Rhoynar were uh, an older people than the Andals, and surely peoples that have been forgotten to Martin world history, people who fled to places other than Westeros. In the east, we've got the northern portion along separate Slaver's Bay. You've got water to the south, and then there's the landmass that runs connecting Valyria to Slaver's Bay, where the Demon Road is now. Presumably, there was no Demon Road that far back, but that's where Mantaris, Borash, Talos, Illyria, and the Isle of Cedars would be. The Isle of Cedars, of course, is where Victorian visited, the, where those monkeys were, and he had those really bad dreams, and he thinks about the doom, and it's really cool. It's really interesting, because there's another micro-influence from the ancient world here. Talos is known for its slingers, which reminds me of the Balearic slingers from... So oh. what's... what's the, why? So... Why did that happen? Why were the Balearic Islanders so good at slinging, whereas out pretty much everywhere else in the ancient world, there was bow and arrows? Is, is it just the available natural resources or is this something else? I think it's, you get that you just get traditions that sort of spring up okay. and then they become like self-filling. So you get the people from the Balearic Islands really good at slinging. Uh, Cretan archers is a famous one. Like sort of missile throwers from the Illyrian coast, that kind of thing. Okay. That, that makes sense. Just whatever like the local traditions are. Okay. Yeah. So once they just some it becomes a thing and then it stays a thing. Everyone teaches their you teach your kids how to sling and <laughs> they teach their kids how to sling. And why would yep. they ever take up a bow? You know, <laughs> unless they were born into somewhere where that was being taught. Yeah. Right on. Okay. Then of course we Slaver's Bay itself is is pretty straightforward. Uh, the Valyrian made their way across, I suppose. Then the, farther east is the the Quathai people, which is Karth. But there's also the Red Waste. And the Red Waste had already been forming back then. So it wasn't appealing 
to the Valyrians, I, we can guess. Also, Karth was probably a great trade partner. So they may have just may have made more sense to just keep that rather than stretching so far to the east across a desert to try to conquer a, a pretty big city triple with their big triple walls. It probably wouldn't have been easy even with dragons. So to the west is more where they focused. Volantis is pretty much right there when you exit the peninsula and it's still there. It still has blood of the ancient blood within. It still has people worshiping Valyrian gods inside the black walls. There's a lot of old Valyria still kept there and we very much hope we get to get some of those tidbits in future books. The Roinar, of course, a big deal. The Roin itself was a temporary expansion barrier because even though dragons can fly right over that, the troops, you, you, you can't hold a city with just dragons. It's like you can't conquer a city with an air force. You can level the ground and make it easier for the troops to come in, but you're never going to hold it with just planes or air force. It's the same thing here. So once they were yeah, able to cross... That's what I was about Karth also. Like the dragons could fly to Karth and destroy it, but you can't get the troops across yeah. the desert to yeah. maintain you it. You saw what happened when Danny tried to go across the desert. It was, it was rough. Yeah, and it wouldn't be that much easier for the troops. Just Alexander the Great took his army through a desert. That, that wasn't great. Yeah, well. <laughs> yeah. A, lot of died. a lot of people died. A lot of deaths. Yeah. So the Andals were, were pushed towards the Axe, and we'll talk about them more later. You can look at the maps and get in a sense of where that is. Basically, just farther north and west away from Valyria. And of course, in the regions where the free cities are now, there were already people there in some cases where the Valyrians just displaced them, enslaved them, killed them, all of the above, built new cities, took over existing cities. Endless examples of that that there would be not much point of George writing about, although he might if he chose to. Yeah, so we, we talk about like Rome. Just like Valyria, it was the center. And not just the center, it was the cultural center, economic center, religious center. And it's, I think it's hard for us to maybe visualize just how big and wealthy and how many like trophies and displays of wealth just at its peak were present there. And... Valyria was probably the same with just a little more magic mixed in. And there's some art with like lava flowing through channels as if it was like the canals of Bravos or Venice, but lava instead of water, which I'm not sure if that's really how it was. It's pretty cool, though. But let's talk a minute, Jamie, about power being just so concentrated in one spot when it's such a vast amount of territory they're ruling and just how big it gets, how wealthy it gets and, and how it's hard for us to maybe conceive of that. And, and that is a reason as well why the Valyrian families stayed there. Why they didn't just go try, oh, I'm going to go live over here. No, everything's in the center. You stay there. So let's talk about that for a minute. Yeah, it's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy almost. Like when you've got such power that it's natural that things start to attach themselves to it. Mm. So if you let's start off basic with the cycle, you've got someone who is powerful, who's probably the most wealthy person in an area. So you're going to start having luxury resource makers who will gather themselves near there because the emperor is the only person who can afford to buy things like this. So you'll have other people who are like, oh, if I want nice things, I need to go to this place. And then money just starts to become concentrated. And then you've got wherever power is, there's also the political aspects of it. Like you want to be close to someone, you want to be having chats with people. That's where you will be able to show off like your role, you'll be able to gain positions through that. There's a load of examples of that in a medieval European history where you want to be like, oh, the, I mean, the Privy Chamber is like a, or the Privy Council is the famous example in Britain. Like it's, oh yeah, the people who go to the toilet with the king, that's where you get to chat with them. <laughs> the Privy Council, literally the, I always wondered why it was called that. It's really because of that. Wow. Yeah. That is maybe another thing that would happen too, is there would be like, there's this cycle of 
someone wealthy attracts someone who supplies for the wealthy. And once you have that there, then more wealthy want to be there for that. That will also start to draw in other things like just simple knowledge. People who aren't necessarily even wealthy or powerful, but the people in that area are going to be more exposed to the culture that's brought in from these other people and the trade that is coming from it and everything. It, it becomes not just a center of wealth, but also of culture and art and communication and everything else. Right on. Yeah, you get that with a lot of like um, French cities in the 1700s. Like um, you think of the all the resources for like the luxury furniture that grow up around Paris for supplying Versailles, and then like the silk working in Lyon just to for fashion, and then that becomes like the center of the city, and you get a whole city just because it's a convenient trade point between Paris and the uh, silk farms in Italy that you get a whole city mm. out of it. Interesting. What about other shining cities in the Mediterranean? Did Rome have a policy of diminishing them or did they just outshine them? Or what was their... Did they try to aggressively stop any other city from getting even getting even close to their... I mean, Carthage would be an example, I suppose. But are there other examples like that? Or they just, did they just dominate so much that it didn't really matter? Or, I'm curious about that. They, I think, dominate like militarily and then that leads on towards the cultural domination. So you've got the all political power in the Mediterranean is attached to, I mean, at one stage, either Alexandria or uh, Rome. So they're the two major cities. You get a few others, I guess, Antioch from like the remnants of the uh, old Seleucid Empire. But once Rome's conquered the Mediterranean, it's Rome is where all the power is. So everything starts to centralize there until you get to the point at which Rome's no longer strategically useful. When you start to have the emperor needing to move around the empire more, and then power gets sucked away from Rome and gets attached to wherever the emperor happens to be. Like you get a new cycle mm. of the emperor locates somewhere, then the court relocates there, then the merchants relocate there, then everything relocates. There. So you have the birth of like new powers. Like, I mean, Constantinople is the famous one when Constantine moves there, but you'll have that with like that's where. Milan becomes significant when you get a, an emperor there, when Trier in, in French Germany becomes significant because you've got an emperor there. Hmm. Perhaps another solid comparison here, one that fits in very well because a lot of this has its origins in Italy, which probably even dates back to a lot of ancient stuff, is maybe a through line to modern or semi-modern mafia. When you think about 40 families. That sounds like the five families of New York. I mean, these are powerful families that do what they want as long as they don't mess each other up. They, they, can, they tolerate evil and dirty deeds to, to a maximum extent as long as they aren't aimed at each other. And they do the off the five families. They meet and they discuss like territory and who gets to control this. And they, they talk it out so they don't all destroy each other because they're all very prone to violence, mm. as we know. So it makes sense. It's like a survival instinct for them to not just go straight to that. Hey, we're not on the same team, but we don't need to be enemies. So I feel like that's a similarity to the 40 families. What you were just describing is that the Valyrians wouldn't have a moving court because they didn't have an emperor, but they would have mm. various dragon rider families going to different corners of the empire, the freehold, putting out fires or starting them because dragons do that. <laughs> <laughs> that analogy doesn't work quite as well. Dealing with problems that are more personal to their sphere of control of their family, something that's not a national issue and something that's not an imperial issue. So you would have like lots of miniature versions of what you just described, like a court 
like a dragon rider maybe brings a few people with them. Sometimes they would just go on their own because mm-hmm. it's just a dragon and they can't bring everybody with them. <laughs> but but they might have like local like a local magistrate that's loyal to their family that they are in contact with and mm-hmm. things like that. That might even be something that held back certain wars from happening. Mm. If a Valerian shows up on a dragon to some city <laughs> and says, "Hey, I can either burn you down or you give me a hundred horses." They're going to give them 100 horses. All right, horses. here's 100 horses. Yeah. Yeah. And they come back every year and they do that. And as long as I'm here getting these 100 horses, I, I brought some gold from my mines. Let me buy your art, your jewelry, your whatever. It, it, merchants might start to appear to appeal to the Valerians. And I, I can money. see how... <laughs> as yeah. Jamie wrote that in the document for a different point. It really <laughs> works here too. <laughs> and you can see how this sort of oh, mafia-like relationship might have built up and some of the bordering territories of Valeria, or even outside, if they could fly, there were dragons that would have kept the desire from war at bay. Yeah, like for example, okay, so this 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 brings up another concept that I'm I don't know a lot about with Rome, but I I do. It's familiar, and and Jamie, you can explain a little better that I imagine it applied to Valeria because we know Valeria sent archons, which we know is a Greek term. Well, started as one, and now it's used in other places for like a temporary ruler. In this for this in this context, it's like a temporary ruler, mm-hmm. like a a short-term dictator maybe, but without maybe quite that level of power. Client kingdoms is what I'm getting at. What? How does yeah. that relate? I, I imagine Valeria maybe had a lot of things they controlled, but like the free cities, they weren't, they were free. Mm-hmm. They weren't ruled directly by Valeria, but they owed their allegiance to Valeria. They were like, don't step out of line or Valeria's going to come down on you. But day to day, you can call your own shots as long as you're, you don't drift from our sphere. So I, that's the equivalent as client kingdoms. The difference being they weren't yeah. their city states and they didn't have kings. But other than that, it's pretty similar. So why don't you talk about that for a minute? So like the basic idea of a, a client kingdom, yeah, you've got someone who is a ally of the of your state, but you've got a high degree of influence there. Like you can tell them what to do. It's useful because it's cheap. Having to directly rule somewhere is very expensive. It's a lot of effort. If you're a Valeria, you don't want to be. You want to be in Valeria. You don't <laughs> yeah. want to be stuck <laughs> off in uh, in Tyrone <laughs> looking after them. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. So it's a lot easier to just have them do what you say without you having to be there. So how that works in the ancient world is, as the Roman Empire is forming, there'll be a lot of existing kingdoms, and then rather than having to send the legions in to go conquer them, it's a lot easier to just say. Okay, we'll leave you to your own devices, but like you have to do what we tell you. And if someone tries to invade us through you, you do the fighting. So they've got that as like a defensive perimeter, like around the vulnerable bit. That eventually gets solidified where the Romans do conquer most of these client kingdoms. And then that reaches its zenith around Hadrian, where you start getting like, like walls being built, like Hadrian's Wall, oh, yeah. used as like a way to like push power beyond a static line. Mm. But Rome is directly on the front. But then you get into the same problem of, or a different problem of, if you're trying to defend a static line, and you breach that line, then all of a sudden you're very, really vulnerable. Mm. So you get a retransition in the 300s where the Romans start to delegate power back to local authorities, mm. which is the origins of feudalism. Like um, oh. the Latin word for uh, these allies is foederati, which is where you get feudal and federates from. Nice. Mm. Like this dispersed power. So during the barbarian invasions, what kind of happens is they set up these certain like friendly states 
and use them as like allies that they can then balance power around. So it's like, okay, the Franks, they can settle in northern France, they will defend northern France for us. The Vandals, they can settle in southern Spain, they will defend North Africa for us. And then that goes on for about 50 years until all the barbarians just gang up on Rome and get rid of them. But when done well, it can be a really useful way of balancing power and doing it cheaply. Hmm. Makes sense. And the Romans would be skilled and, and experienced with various forms of control, various forms of government, various mm-hmm. forms of exerting influence. That's, again, getting back into what a nation gets good at and how they apply that to the mm-hmm. rest of the world. Yeah, that, that also bleeds into what we we're talking about with mafia stuff. And mafia is really good at influence through indirect means, violent and, and under the radar. And it's whether that control is exerted behind the scenes or just out in front, like we're going to blow you up, melt you with our dragons if you don't listen. It, it has a similar end result. I was thinking about Genghis Khan and how completely dominant, how completely, I think, more so than like the Spartans over anyone yeah, or one anyone most, over more, anyone. One of the most dominant militaries of all time, yeah. Right, it just seemed virtually unstoppable. And comparing this to Valyria, how mm. they were relatively new. They kind of came out of nowhere and just rolled over cities and states that had existed for, I don't know, centuries. I don't know, I don't know if ancient is quite the word for them, but... Uh, so. One, a lot of times we've compared the dragons to maybe climate change, but also maybe nuclear bombs. Mm-hmm. I don't know if if that's the closest level in the real world of disparity of power from you know nuclear bombs, mm. dragons, the, the Mongol horde, I think might be that the biggest disparity in the level of power and capability of a military compared to the rest of the world. And and one, I think it's a good parallel to Valeria, how it came suddenly dominated and it went away quick too, relatively. Mm. So one, I, I just thought that my mind was spinning on this a little bit. Mm. I wanted to ask Jamie, maybe if you could think of another time, another moment in history or military force that was maybe at that level. And and beyond that, what comparisons there might be to Valeria when you think about the Mongols? Good question. I really like that question. I think that's a great <laughs> comparison. Um, Thank you. <laughs> Yeah the, yeah, the way the Mongols kind of explode onto the scene and are just very good at dominating a large swathe of Central Asia. Um, I think similarly at that, the, the Huns, with how, like another steppe people who are very good at sort of like cavalry warfare, they've got the great bows the same way the Mongols do. And then you've got the extra layer of the Huns drive people ahead of them. So like the Huns move into Eastern Europe, which then drives the Visigoths and the Vandals and the Goths off into Rome. And then that starts the cascade of invasions into other invasions, similar to, I guess, like the Vandals moving westwards. Oh, yeah. That's interesting. And similar with the uh, the Mongols, there's the, uh, what are they called? Kipchaks. Yeah, Yeah, that they chase from essentially like central Siberia all the way across Asia. That's a lot of how how the Mongol conquest happens. Each state ends up hosting them and then they lose and then they move on to the next one and then just gradually chasing them sort of accidentally over about 20, 30 years. So that would be interesting, like the how the it's like chasing a particular enemy. I suppose you could compare that maybe to like uh moving against Skiss. Hmm. It's like that, that 
pursuance around the area, moving all the the different bits, all the different cultures associated with that and chasing it down. Hmm. Um, you but, end up in conflict with the Roin when you're going after Gis. Yeah. Sure. <clears throat> like as you're your horizons are suddenly so much bigger. You're doing a lot more. You just get tangled up in more and more conflicts doing that. That when you're trying to do something with Giss, you move a fleet somewhere and whoops, you've sparked a war with somebody else. Oh, yeah. The allies, yeah, the entangling alliances or even, I mean, beyond what you're saying, there's this too. Yeah, that's really that's really interesting. One, unless, we're, unless you had anything else on that, Sean or Jamie, we can move on to uh, War Elephants. I'd yeah. just say the, the Mongols also uh, good communication networks. Yeah. Like that's one of the most underrated things about the Mongols is that excellent like messaging system. A precursor to the Pony Express, basically, right? Like that. Pretty much. Yeah. Like they're like a Central Asian equivalent of the, the Roman roads. With the fresh horses, like the guy would run, gallop all night, switch horses, yeah. keep going. Yeah. Yeah. Basically. When the when they started to account encounter European armies, something like one in a hundred of the European army would have a horse, whereas <laughs> each Mongol had four horses. Each <laughs> yeah, one yeah. had four, you know, yeah. yeah. And that's, that's oh. a real, like, territory thing. Too. You talk about how the Romans weren't very good with cavalry, and, and neither were the Greeks for the most part, except you get into northern Greece like Thessaly. But yeah, it's just, it's just territory. Like, they just, you don't raise horses on hills and, and mountains. So that's a flat ground thing, and the Mongols had a lot of that. Another thing that I've just thought of, the... Um, environmental factors like limiting migration, like one of the things that gets talked about when steppe nomads generally move into Europe is the the moisture that Europe is very moist and there's a lot of rain mm. and how that can affect the bows and make them less useful. Oh, yeah. And that kind of limits how far westward they could go. Like whether you'd consider like and how far dragons could go from Valyria, like how far north can dragons go yeah like, is that going to affect where the freehold goes and that yeah that's more relevant to perhaps the main series at this point is whether they can go how far north they can go and all that yeah because i don't suppose valeria probably didn't run into a whole lot of icy climates they're so they're so tropical and they're rooted but you're right that would be a barrier to them and if they did run into that they'd be like nah <laughs> let's not go let's not go here it's a snowy place let's not go to it. <laughs> it seemed like drogo seemed to have a calling back like he didn't want to get too far away from home i, I wonder if maybe the the dragons maybe want to get to cold territory or if they get a certain distance away from valyria or mm, whatever or their home whatever they recognize magic as home. source or whatever yeah that makes sense yeah there is some a, there is some like homing sort of an invisible yeah. f- invisible barrier for them yeah that's that's really neat one other kind of minor but it's just a little another point something i learned at one point another reason for the success of the mongols would have been they had something genetically that allowed them to process lactose. And so they could drink the horse milk. They could bring their food with them. And yeah, other armies got used necessarily to that. do that. Yeah. yeah, That makes a lot of sense. I mean, you've, there's plenty of modern examples of certain cultures not being adapted to dairy or, yeah, or different, different foods or, or hot food, <laughs> spicy foods or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> we all, yeah, we all uh, are, are used to what we're used to. Okay, let's talk about war elephants. Pretty interesting topic. It's more related to this. Wouldn't this is less directly related to Valyria, but it is related because they would have probably fought against them. I don't know that, that they had them as part of their armies, but they might have because they subjugated nations that would have had access to this. That's less clear. It's not mentioned anywhere, but it makes some sense, especially because Jamie, one of your first notes here is it's a, it's a show of magnificence, and you know Valyria mm-hmm. was all about that, showing them what they could control and rule and dominate. Elephants, one of the largest animals there is. Why not that too? So first question, 
How were they used in battle? Because what we're building up to is how they're going to be used in battle in Westeros, including how they might deal with things that we've never seen in the real world, like facing dragons. So mm-hmm. <laughs> let's build, work our way up to that, starting with just the, the, the basics. So there are a few different ways that you can use some elephants. They're one, they're scary. It's good to like, put them at the front of the army. They're going to freak the opposition out. You think, how on earth am I going to deal with that? And that's just the people. Like They scare horses as well. So if you've got a cavalry-based army, that they're going to be really nervous around the elephants. They aren't going to like it. Link that to the Dothraki, how you will. Yeah, I wonder about that. And so that's thing number one. They're scary. Thing number two, the heights. So you can use them as platforms both for seeing the battlefield and getting a good picture oh. of it and for missiles. So you might have a little slight turret structure on top of the elephant that you'll use for archery. Um, I can scatter like, a lot further because you've got the height advantage than you could if you were on the ground. Also on a little smaller scale, but as you said before, communication. You could just project commands farther from that oh, Just height. like, yeah, vocal. That's, that's a good point. That's a really good point. Yeah. The, visual, the visual, that's something that people don't maybe think about a lot. It's just like the general or the commanders being able to see what's happening is just so important. And Hannibal, we're using him as a lot of example here. He was one of the best generals that's ever lived. And he mm-hmm. had an elephant. He would, he would do that a lot. Like eventually that elephant died, didn't it? Oh yeah, the, yeah about it dying, yeah. Eventually. The, yeah, I think yeah, most of them all but one died crossing the Alps and there was one that got looked after, but it was like almost like a pest at that point. So they didn't oh. want to risk it in battle. Oh, okay. Yeah, elephants crossing the Alps. That's just like, what? <laughs> that really happened? Yeah, well, not really because they didn't survive it. Yeah, <laughs> he tried. It was audacious. So yeah, so that sounds really interesting. The horses thing, can horses get used to elephants? Can they like, is that a thing, a skill they can acquire getting like comfortable around elephants? Is that a, is there examples of that or is it just... they? do sometimes I think it's more a thing in like Indian warfare that you'll have like chariots mm-hmm. and um, elephants operating in close proximity but in terms of Rome and Carthage they tend to be kept separate rather than okay. integrated into separate units so what when a battle starts you've got we we're talking about the the visibility the using it as a missile platform what about like a direct assault how were they used in terms of like charges like a cavalry charge what's an elephant cavalry charge look like or how what was their goal and and, and anything you can describe about it I'm sure people would love to hear so the basics of military strategy are you want to use your infantry to pin down the enemy line and then use your cavalry to hit them from the side or back. So it's called the uh, the sword and shield approach. Use the shield to hold them, go around them with the sword. So that basic principle gets applied in lots of different ways. But in terms of the warfare being used in the Mediterranean, you just tend to have phalanxes, so like shield walls that clash up against each other. And then you want to ideally use your elephant to go around the back and just smash into oh. the phalanx from the back. Okay. And when the phalanx gets hit by that, it will disintegrate. If there's a gap in the phalanx, then the infantry can go in and just eat it from the inside out. That's that's the goal. Use the cavalry to disrupt and allow the infantry to get in. I think what we've seen portrayed in movies, when you see, I don't know, Lord of the Rings, where there were the Oliphants, seem to be portrayed more as you just send them right at the front lines and just break everything apart. Is that not very realistic? Or is maybe just a few examples of that, maybe? It's less useful. Like you can do it, and there are examples of it happening, but elephants are also very unpredictable. Uh, so they're going to do their own thing. <laughs> if you send them to a wall of spikes, 
they don't like it. They're just going to turn around and move back like, at no. you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Common sense. Elephants aren't as dumb as a lot of animals. They're pretty smart. Yeah. yeah they never forget either. <laughs> yeah, they don't forget. And they're like, no, I, I didn't want to do that last time. And yeah, I don't want to do that this time. <laughs> I think maybe it was at Zama as well. Was it that the Romans had learned a little bit about how to fight with elephants? And so they just, when the elephants came out, they would just move out of the way. They're like, you're not going to disrupt our lines. We're just going to give the room and then we'll reform. We're not going to get in that thing's way. <laughs> Is that accurate? Yeah. Okay. The, um, yeah, the, I think they were used by against uh, Pyrrhus of Epirus uh, yeah. when he invaded Italy in the 280s BC. The Pyrrhic the victory guy, were, yeah. <laughs> yep. They get used to it, and then within about two or three battles, they know how to handle elephants. Okay. So elephants aren't really that common in Mediterranean warfare, but in cases where there are more established parts of it and they're just integrated into the system like they are in Indian warfare, they're used like up until the 19th century, like partly because wow. they're so good at the um, terrain that when you've um, got, they can go in places that cavalry can't do. So they're just used in place of a heavy cavalry. The mud doesn't bother them as much and all that. Okay, yeah, yeah that, makes, that makes a lot of sense. And I guess small bodies of water as well, they could just be like, Meh, no problem. <laughs> yeah. Another thing that you didn't bring up that I just assume has got to be a big factor. Logistically, they can carry more weight. Mm. Your elephant can have more water and food and weaponry or supplies, etc. Mm-hmm. There's also the flip side of that, but you need to feed it as well. There's a lot of food. That <laughs> oh, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> Elephants do eat a lot, I suppose. <laughs> so how do you, other than learning the tactics, like let, you know, figuring out like the Romans did, what are, what are other ways that you fight back against elephants? So elephants are, I suppose like any infantry unit, like they're very effective, but they need to be well supported. Like by themselves, they're very weak. So basically just throw a spear at it. So what the Romans did to fight the elephants as well as getting out of the way is they had units called velatos, which are lightly armored troops that just carry like a handful of spears that they'll go out, they'll run out, throw them, run back. They just sent out these units which could operate unsupported against the elephants, throw a load of spears at the elephants, elephants get killed, and then that's that. Hmm. So to operate effectively, the elephants need to be protected. You need to make sure that lightly armored like missile troops can't get near it. So it needs to be fully integrated into whatever plan you're doing and they need to be protected, used in the right way, used at the right time. If you just send them out there, they're going to get killed. Do they wear armor? Do you have armored elephants? Sometimes, but I, again, it slows them down. Um, yeah. and it's, it's probably hard uh, to armor their trunk and their ears. <laughs> certain parts you know, would be hard. They, yeah. They need the mobility as well. And then just like getting the thing into it, you know. Mm-hmm. Wants to be an elephant dresser. <laughs> <laughs> so certain things that are maybe set up to happen in Westeros with elephants. I don't know of examples that have ever happened in the real world. Like have like knights or the equivalent armored swords and lances ever faced war elephants in the real world? Is that a thing that's ever happened? I don't think so. There tends to be okay. uh, like separate zones of influence, like the knights side of European warfare never got anything close to uh, where war elephants were off in the Far East. By the time that Europeans are engaging militarily in there, they've already moved on to okay. like gunpowder. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. There's not much of a, a direct comparison. I suppose the main or the closest would be cataphracts, which are like mailed or like horses covered in mailed armor. Chain mail, that's what I'm looking Those for. Those were... Uh, like- 
from northern like Black Sea nations, right? Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's like Middle East, North Africa. Uh, they right. tend to be used quite heavily. But again, you get the issue of like horses just being terrified of the elephants when they go near. Okay. Yeah. So it's hard to imagine. What would you, just using your best guesses, intuition, how do you think, let's say the Tyrell army sets up against the Golden Company and the Golden Company brings out some elephants? What, what, would you have any predictions for that? Okay, let me throw another wrinkle at it. It seems to be going to be happening in a muddy area. This is the Stormlands. So a lot of people's predictions is that this is going to be a, a muddy battle, which, as you said, maybe the elephants aren't going to mind that. The horses certainly will. And archers as well, given what you said about moisture. So that could be a problem. What do you think? What would your guess be about how this might play out? Other, obviously, lots. anything could happen. Mm-hmm. It's George's imagination, but just give us a baseline expectation, I suppose. My money is probably on the Golden Company. (laughs) I think the uh, Westerosi armies tend to be a bit disjointed. There aren't that many examples of them cooperating in unified ways that you need to to beat them. They they tend to be a bit. I suppose when you get with when it's not a professional army, like it's like a lot of conflicts we're facing when they see elephants for the first time they're going to be scared they're going to freak out of it yeah they're never going to have even seen um, such a thing before you're right that's going to be completely yeah. new they're like that I've never seen that before it's like when John saw yeah. a giant for the first time you know <laughs> you'll have this small percent of like trained loyal honorable knights who will stand their ground despite their fear or whatever like but they won't be able to coordinate everyone else yeah. the way they yeah, need those to those peasant levies are like uh... <laughs> Something we said for home field advantage, that might yeah. be a factor. Yeah, you're right. Uh, then you've got like knights will probably be on horses, and then the horses freak out when they get near the elephants. Yeah. So it could be a yeah, disaster for the West Tarasi Port. It could be like a complete yeah. stomping by the elephants. One thing they may have in their favor is the artillery. If they okay. can get some scorpions um, oh. that could take out a, take out an elephant quite easily. But if it's if it's stormy, if it's rainy, then trying to move around the artillery, that might be a bit tricky, but... And there probably isn't much to say about dragons versus elephants. I don't suppose that would be much of a contest, but it is worth mentioning that it could happen, right? Either dragons mm. versus regular elephants or versus mammoths in the north. Mammoths would be even more susceptible because of all that hair. Oof. Worth me bringing up in the chat to wage war podcast brought up. We talked about this before, Aziz. You can use fire. Elephants are spooked by fire. Oh, yeah, yeah. J- Jim McGeehan. Hey, Jim, how's it going, my friend? Yeah, I did forget about that. You're right. Elephants are afraid of fire. That's a good point. Okay, so they, well, dragons, all the more reason why they're just really screwed there. Always bet the dragons. <laughs> yeah, fire is scary to well, pretty much everyone. Yeah, are you <laughs> yeah. not scared by fire? anyone who can experience fear? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but yeah, especially animals. We got a closing quote. In short, the names and numbers of the people who fell to Valeria are largely unknown to us today. What records the Valerians kept of their conquests were largely destroyed by the doom, and few, if any, of those peoples documented their own histories in a way that survived the Freehold's dominion. It's a pretty good outro statement for for this one good writing from george really does cap- encapsulate the the grand scale of what we're trying to discuss here and imagine because a lot of it of course is imagination we don't we don't have specifics on a lot of this but so much of it as we can see a lot from jamie's help shows us that real world comparisons a lot of this is just basic understanding of how ancient militaries ancient politics ancient wealth greed some of these things are just similar throughout human history you'd really just need to Add a few details and you can imagine how it would go without having to spin your wheels. These things to stay true throughout the generations and the nations and everything. Any final thoughts, Jamie, on that quote or Valeria and Rome or anything else you wanted to say? 
I'll say that the ultimate relationship between Rome and Valeria, obviously the fall of the Roman Empire and the doom, which I think for whenever you pick that up next time, that'll be a, that'll be a great thing to get into. Right on. Yeah, you're right. Like um, comparing to compare those two things, if you had maybe like a quick statement on w- maybe the, the main factors that caused the end of Rome that would be similar to the end of Valeria, obviously without the magic stuff, maybe what comes to mind? Environmental factors uh, have to be taken into account and large pockets of the civilization that the civilization isn't beneficial for. But that's fundamentally destable. A snake eating its tail or a dragon eating its tail perhaps is maybe a good metaphor here. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It eventually got to the end. It, got, it ran out of tail to eat <laughs> and started chewing on its own head. Yeah, that's pretty good. Okay, so some quick questions. Most of these are just comments. Two Age War podcasts. Here's a fun quote for Sean. It doesn't matter if you have the power in the sky if the enemy can occupy your mess hall. That's right. Jim, yeah. Jim, Two Age War was uh, was in the military and so was Sean. So these guys are, these are <laughs> little soldier connections there. <laughs> Here be dragons. Come listen to I Know That Nerd with Sean. Oh yeah, I'll be checking that out for sure. I hope a lot of you join me. I'll be in the comments section. You can interact with me in the chat there. We got a nice response to the what to call a group of dragons. Urias Tosh says, an eruption of dragons or a flow of dragons. That's pretty good. Mm. Juliano Teixeira Strober says, I would say squad of dragons. That's pretty cool. Dragon squad. <laughs> Form up. <laughs> Liam Mullen says, a clutch of dragons. Ooh, that's good too. Tony Sled says a storm or a cloud of dragons or a storm cloud of dragons would be cool too. <laughs> Here be dragons says gaggle of geese, so a draggle of dragons. <laughs> given and maybe given Jim's point, a mess of dragons, <laughs> indirectly related, same words. Michael Shelton says in George R. R. Martin's book, The Ice Dragon, a military unit of dragons is called a wing. Oh yeah, a wing of dragons. Yeah, like a like a wing. That's like an Air Force term too. Sir Sir Roland Stark says a disaster of dragons. Ooh. I like that one. That's good. Nina Friel says, I like a shadow of dragons myself. Ooh, yeah, that's really good because of the shadow. That's really good for Song of Ice and Fire because George always talks about the shadow of the wings and all that. Very good. All right, so one last bit from the Sospeak Martin, 2012. Someone asked, will we get to see Valyria as it was before the Doom as it is today? George said, maybe. And then another time he was asked, is there any chance we'll see Valyria? And he said, well, there may be. Not a great chance, mind you. The question is, is it going to be a look at Valyria now or Valyria in the past. So like Brands goes into the, you know, uses the Werewood Network to look deep into the past or Melisandre. It's hard to even imagine how that would happen. Danny having some sort of, I mean, she's had visions of the past. That's just stokes the imagination. Very interesting. I'm curious about that. Don't know uh, where it'll be, but hopefully that's a, that not great chance actually comes through for us because that's, that's very tantalizing, George. <laughs> Don't do that to us. Okay, the trivia question. Last bit. After taking Marine, Daenerys sends envoys out to several places in the region seeking allies and trading partners. Which former Valyrian city sends her a cedar chest containing her envoys' heads by way of answer? Of course, that answer being no. Those heads were pickled in brine, not just rotting. It was, you know, a very fancy cedar chest full of heads. The city is <laughs> Mantaris. Mantaris, city of monsters known for producing some mutated people. Two-headed people and things like that. Weird, kind of interesting, kind of curious, creepy. (laughs) Thanks so much for joining us, Jamie. This was super fun. You were really insightful. You really, the discussions really just flowed. It was, it went really smoothly. We learned a lot. I imagine my, uh, the listeners out there were super happy with, with, with this discussion. Please tell everyone, remind everyone again of where your podcasts can be found. 
list them out for people. And I hope some people go check you out because you're a great podcast. So mine are a history of Hannibal and the Punic Wars, a history of Alexander the Great, Arab Spring, a history and a history of the United States. Uh, they can all be found on any major pod, on any podcaster podcatching platform and thanks for having me I've had a great time and I've learned that I can't say Irish whisper I thought I could redeem myself <laughs> he's gonna go practice <laughs> offline he's gonna be like alright I'm gonna get this <laughs> well yeah thanks again Jamie that was fantastic thanks to Nina for her extra notes a lot of good notes there Nina appreciate the assistance on that thanks to our patrons for all the support you make all this possible and we can't be thankful enough we're so appreciative thanks to joey townsend and jesse koval for the music kevin mcleod for the intro music of reval arboretus thanks to michael clarfeld for the uh, maps and the video intro thanks to our mods who take care of things over on facebook and discord keeping all the great community discussions going and of course once again let's all go check out sean on here be dragons and next week We'll be back with more Valar Reredus.